Alright, ladies and gentlemen of the Bizzlecast, I am so very, very, very excited and honored to be here today to do the official Bizzlecast commentary for June 2021, directed by Denis Villeneuve, with a cast of thousands, uh, the most important book, uh, series of books in my life. I didn't dare to believe this would be good, let alone great, and it is absolutely fabulous. I have very few critiques. I mostly love this movie, but more importantly, uh, Europe and America, uh, especially America, which I wasn't sure about, is loving this movie. Uh, not just hardcore fans, but uh, you know, almost all the casuals I've talked to, uh, whether they're nerds or just you know, sci-fi casuals in general. Um, and I'll talk about some of the reasons why. Um, I want to get us right into the countdown. I did record like a 15 or 20 minute um, intro uh, where I talk a little bit about the, the movie's development and my sort of up and down feelings about it and how I started feeling better over time um, uh, with the cast and the director and then of course COVID um, and also how important the books are to me, but it's a long movie, and I want to get us right into the commentary. So I'm going to release the intro file as a, as a separate file. It's only 15-20 minutes, so it'll be a Bizzlecast quickie, um, and uh, if you want to know a little bit more about my process, but also the process behind this film, um, and how, you know, the high, high, high level of difficulty of adapting something so famous, but also so bizarre as Dune, um, the world of Dune, and the books of Dune, uh, you should check that out. But I'm going to get us right into the commentary here. Uh, I, I get a lot in. Um, I talk a little fast at times, uh, and I have to circle back to some topics, uh, so you'll have to forgive me because I have, I have a lot to say, but I had an absolute blast doing it, and I hope you enjoy it, um, so uh, let's get into it right away. Um, I'm going to assume you're watching it on HBO Max if you're torrenting it or whatever, uh, you know, um, adjust accordingly, but assuming you're watching this on HBO Max, um, which I'm glad it's on so I can do this commentary while it's still in theaters and on HBO Max, uh, there's usually like a 30-second you know, uh, commercial, optional commercial, you know, like Prime does and so forth, um, before it starts. So you click on the Dune file, um, and, and there'll be like a 30-second commercial, um, and at about 32 seconds, uh, it switches over to a black and then into the crazy Hans Zimmer music and then the Warner Brothers legendary titles and so forth. So cue up to somewhere around 30, 31, 32 seconds past the commercial and right before the movie starts. I'm going to count from 3 to 2 to 1 and say go. Um, when I say go, I'm going to, I normally count one, two, three, four, five, uh, to make sure we're aligned. Here it's going to be 32, 33, 34, 35, uh, because that'll be the time signature that we share, uh, watching HBO Max together here in this amazing movie. I mean, I've already done it. I've listened to it a bunch of times and, uh, I'm still excited, um, now, uh, for you guys to hear it. Um, and that's it, you know, uh, you know, really quick, uh, I always recommend subtitles. This is a movie where the only benefit of seeing it not in the theater this is when you have to see in the theater uh, no one I know that's seen it uh, not in the theater first has liked it as much as people saw in the theater it's like the Dark Knight um, a lot of Nolan movies you know some of these movies it, you know uh, later watching it on TV is fine but you have to have at least one experience in the theater um, uh, and so I highly recommend it if you haven't done it the one benefit of course of watching it at home is the subtitles because you know between the really loud Hans Zimmer music and just the fact that the characters have accents and and talk fast and and there's a lot going on. Um, uh, there were parts of the movie um, where I didn't need subtitles because I know the book almost by heart, and this is so loyal, as 
we'll talk about, um, but I'm sure people missed stuff. And so the best thing to do is to see it in the theater, and then here we are, and you put the subtitles on. I leave the volume up to you. I usually say 10% on the volume, um, and so you can hear me, and you can hear uh, a little bit of the sound of the amazing Hans Zimmer music, but I leave the volume up to you. I leave the subtitles up to you, um, and that's about it. So get ready for the countdown. Again, three to two to one, say go, starting at around 32 seconds. I'm going to count the first little bit, and then, of course, I'll mention when the WB logo comes up and the legendary logo comes up and so forth, and we will get right into this thing. Um, again, so check out the Bizzlecast Quickie, uh, which is an intro I, I recorded for this before the commentary um, uh, that I think you guys will find fun and accessible. Um, but if not, enjoy this commentary, and, and I get a lot in, and I'm just so thrilled at the amazing reception um, by both fans and non-fans and how quickly they greenlit the sequel to this and most likely a number of the books um, uh, of the six Dune books which it seems for sure we'll get sort of the first trilogy um, uh, one thing at a time though this is great and it leaves people wanting more which is exactly what you want and we know we're getting more we're getting a TV series so um, okay shut up Bizzle here comes the countdown guys so get everything ready hit pause if you need to and uh, I'm gonna go into the countdown alright here we go three two one and go 33, 34, 35, dreams or messages from the deep, already crazy sounds from Hod Zimmer. The soundtrack is spectacular. It's a combination of Pan-Asian and Pan-African music, as well as just some insane Zimmer stuff. God knows where he gets it. WB did a bang-up job on this, from the production on down to the promotion and release. I'm very happy for and proud of them because they haven't been necessarily doing that even with great properties like DC Comics over the past few years. This one they nailed. Now we have the Legendary Pictures logo. Hopefully you're mostly lined up. Thank you again for joining me. Um, we're going to have an opening dialogue from the amazing, amazing Zendaya. I mean, she's great in this, uh, but everything she's been in, she's just spectacular. The youngest win winner of an Emmy ever from Insomnia, I believe this here is called. Um... Uh, now, I'm going to try not to do too much of this is in the book, this isn't in the book, this is in the book, etc. Mostly this is extremely loyal, uh, both in terms of plot and dialogue and flow and feel to the, the book. And uh, as I said in the intro, if you listen to it, the things they cut, mostly I agree with. There's nothing they left in that I think should be cut. There's a couple dialogue bits um, or small scenes that I thought would sort of head scratchers why they would take it out. Um, but it, it's pretty minor. Um, but when stuff really aligns with the book um, to a degree that like gives you chills when you're familiar with it, um, I, I will talk about that a little bit, especially ones that are high level of difficulty. There's, uh, now, I will talk a little bit about the excellent Dune miniseries on sci-fi, which while it has a had a low budget, actually holds up really well. For while the CGI, you could tell, was low budget even at the time in 2000, here are the evil Harkonnens. Um, even while it had a low budget at the time, um, it spent almost all its time and money on great sets and costumes and, and long, um, excellent dialogue character bits and conversations, which this movie even doesn't actually have time for. It's one of the ways in which the, the miniseries is actually superior. Um, 
there's some stuff that is very similar to the miniseries in terms of not how it's shot necessarily, but the flow of things and the feel of things. Um, here we see immediately the Fremen, you know, being guerrilla warriors and how they use the sand in the desert to try and take down the Harkonnens. But as Zendaya talks about, you know, that didn't really accomplish too much. And then the, the Harkonnens leave seemingly mysteriously, um, that we learn pretty quickly why uh, they're called to leave. Um, and they're not gone very long. It's a trap for the Atreides, which the Atreides kind of know. Uh, we'll get to that in a second with Oscar Isaac, who's great as, as Duke Leto. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it was important to have Zendaya as Chani early, and she's constantly in his dreams. Um, and my dad was a little frustrated by it, as I'm sure a lot of people were, because, you know, you expect her, uh, both in terms of the promotion and the trailers, um, to be in a lot of the movie. Um, but ultimately, it's really the second half of the novel in part two, two that we are getting, thankfully, for Dune. Here it is, Dune, part one, a great title. Um, uh, but they don't just keep showing her in Paul's dreams, you know, in order to be like, Zendaya is coming, Zendaya is coming, Zendaya is coming. No, they keep doing it in his dreams because she's the first major thing that he latches onto as his prophecy powers and prescience grow. Um, but she's also the anchor. She will become the anchor in his life way more than his mom or anyone else uh, spiritually and as a friend as well as a lover. Um, but she's also the anchor for the prophecy um, because as the, this movie goes along, just like the book, the the um, the um, clarity as well, the apparent clarity as well as the length of the of the prophecies in his mind um, increase, and then you know to the point where he starts seeing it with his eyes open in his waking life. Um, but it always starts with with Chani because she's the one part of the prophecy in terms of how they'll fall in love with each other um, and be so important to each other. That's the one part of the prophecy that is always true and is manifested how he thinks of it. This is great. Rebecca Ferguson, definitely the MVP for me of the main characters in this film, especially because I wasn't sure what to expect from her. Again, I saw lots of interviews and some clips of her before the film and was already changing my mind. I'd only seen her in the Mission Impossible movies, which I hate. It isn't her fault. She's a grade A actress. And Jessica, his mom, Lady Jessica, is really the most important character, um, along with Paul, uh, in, in the first part of Dune, certainly in the first part of the movie uh, of Dune, uh, but throughout the, the whole novel of Dune, um, but also the whole trilogy of books, which include Dune, Messiah, and Children of Dune. Jessica's maybe the most important over the, the three of them, even more than Paul. Uh, we'll, we'll get there uh, without spoiling too much. I will have to, you know, at least tease some of the stuff that's going to happen in part two of this film um, from the books. Um, uh, I'll try not to be too specific um, talking about Messiah. Up oh, here, he is using the voice. They set up the voice early because it's the coolest of the superpowers. It's the most sort of realistic and believable. It's not just uh, Obi-Wan, you know... Uh, <laughs> Uh, these aren't the droids you're looking for, although that certainly, like so many things, I'm sure influenced um, Mr. Lucas a bit. Hopefully the sound's coming through okay. I'm trying not to listen too loud. Um, again, like most Zimmer sci-fi epics, the music and sound uh, during the action is so much higher uh, in the dynamic range than these quieter scenes, but they had to set up the, the voice early. They had to set up early here. He's studying about Arrakis. 
and stood up early that she's teaching him stuff that boys are not supposed to be taught, especially ones who might be messiahs, uh, and learn about the Bene Gesserit, sort of the the witches, uh, as they're known. You know, they're, they're like the enchantresses and the witcher, uh, the women who actually are working behind the scenes on a galactic level, controlling and moving uh, politics and religion over not just centuries, but millennia in order to create a messiah. Um, one of the big unanswered questions is, you know, why are they trying to create the messiah? They talk a little bit about in this one, uh, but even the book leaves it a little wide open um, other than the usual, we have power, so let's create the most powerful thing we can, which is, uh, you know, a, a human hubris throughout history. There's Andaya again. Um, but, uh, yeah, but Rebecca Ferguson as Jessica nails it. I knew Zendaya would be great, even though she wasn't going to be in a ton. I knew Bardem would be amazing, um, even though he was not going to be in a ton. And uh, the one thing I will say, guys, if you're not sure about this, part two of Dune, the film, uh, which is coming out in two years, and was like, greenlit within like four days of American release. Here it is, The Emperor's Messenger. Um, these ships, do, as my dad pointed out, are reminiscent of the ship design in Arrival, uh, but are also uh, totally in line with the aesthetic from the books. Um, Frank Herbert spends very little time on ships in his books, at least the early ones. He's not really concerned with the sort of dynamics uh, or logistics or even sort of the physics or physical look of space travel. He likes to be on the planets. Here are the, the navigators. Now, um, one of the things, you know, a thing I will mention is there's a lot of stuff that's just shown visually that's not explained that if you've read the books, um, you would know. And one is that the guild navigators have to live permanently in sort of a uh, haze of... of um, uh, spice, uh, vapor, and smoke. Smile, Gurney. These two are great, as we knew they would be. Oscar Isaac and uh, Brolin, classic legendary actors who can't do wrong. This guy's great. I forget his name, um, but he's awesome as Stufir Hawats. Um, uh, great casting um, there as well. Um, there's Jessica. Um, you're not sure if this is the emperor. This guy looks so regal, but the fact that he gives the big bow and then uh, Duke Leto here, played by Oscar Isaac, just gives the nod, tells you. And uh, we missed the part where the Mentat, through fear, um, calculated the insane amount of money, you know, probably could feed planets that it costs to bring this huge ship. Because you, back to the navigators, the guys there who have the sort of orangey masks, that's actually a haze of spice. Um, and uh, you learn over the course of the books um, that the reason they need spice for space travel isn't that they're using it like, d you know, dilithium or whatever uh, to power the ships. They're using it to power the, you know, if Paul is developing major prophetic impression abilities, uh, the guild navigators, by being immersed throughout life for years and years and for the rest of their lives, um, uh, immersed in this haze of spice at every living and I assume sleeping moment, as we see in the orange mists there and the masks, they, they have a sort of small level of prescience, which is what allows them to travel at hyperspeed and not, you know, the question with Star Trek and Star Wars is like, how do you do these jumps, even if you know where you're going, how do you do these jumps and not end up in the middle of a star or in the middle of a planet? Well, one is space is very diff diffuse, <laughs> and so the chances of 
landing in not open space uh, is small, obviously, from a strict mathematical standpoint, but you'd want more assurances than that, especially if you're trying to get to like a very specific part of a very specific system. And so the navigators are actually using a low level of prophecy to predict where the ship will land when they jump, uh, which totally fits uh, with what's going on with the spice impressions throughout Dune, but also it, it makes total sense logistically. Um, and uh, while some of the Dune technology is super cool, like knife fighting because of shield technology, which we'll get to, is just super cool, even if it's not totally believable, or not believable, even if it's not something you'd think is going to happen in, in our technological scenario going forward. Having to use, you know, hallucinogenics that allow you to see the fu future, even on the small level, to predict uh, spaceship jumps uh, and not land in the middle of a sud actually makes a ton of sense. Uh, you know, I don't know if we'll ever have anything like the spice. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, again, that's just the first example of something sort of for the fans. And you read the book and learn about the Spice Navigators, uh, the Guild Navigators, um, explains so much. Here comes Jason Momoa, who, you know, while still not an amazing actor, is just so full of charisma. And uh, everyone loves, going back to his one season of Game of Thrones, is just lovable. And, and I was totally sold on his casting. Um, this early scene... Uh, sells so much it sells that duncan even though they all love paul and he's constantly giving him hugs to convey to the audience um how much he loves them and they and he trusts them and, and they love and trust him um uh this is you know momoa being the roguish you know no filter can't tell a lie um great charisma he's the war leader even though he's one of the younger advisors uh but he's an amazing knife fighter sword fighter and uh, pilot, as, as we'll see. Um, but Paul trusts his dreams to him uh, for a number of reasons here. Um, again, one is to establish the, the fact that he trusts Duncan even more than all the rest of the advisors, and he's right to do so. Um, let me hear Chani again. Um, but he also, you know, he, he can't tell his dad because his dad is intimidating and doesn't want to scare his dad. As we'll see coming up, Leto, you know, knows that something's happening to Paul, but do actually doesn't want to know about it because that's Jessica's territory. Um, and he'll sort of make a statement about that shortly before the betrayal and they all go down. Um, and his mom already knows about it, but, you know, he has a weird relationship with his mom. She's teaching him stuff. Um, but he already has a sense that he's being groomed by these Bene Gesserit who are so behind the scenes and powerful that he can't, you know, fully process that he's being groomed as a messiah or a possible messiah. Duncan doesn't care about that. This is just the Duke's son, and he loves the Duke as they all do. They're super loyal. Even when they betray him, like, spoiler alert, Dr. Yue later, they actually do love the Duke um, and are, are so loyal. And they certainly love the son who's, you know, because he's so sensitive um, and he's, you know, a lot more open than the somewhat uh, cold, um, stoic uh, Duke himself. Um, uh, he really connects. Um, he also, we also wanted to tease that he has a prophecy of uh, what's going to happen with Duncan Idaho, that he will find the Fremen, which he does, that he will die with Paul, like, right there in the other room, which he does. Um, and, uh, you know, what's... As the um, as the the prescience powers that Paul has increase um, throughout the film, like I said, they become apparently more clear. Um, but because um, of the uncertainty principle, 
uh, in real life and in here as well. This is a great father-son part. Uh, this was the perfect casting of Oscar Isaac. If for this scene, if nothing else, because while Duke Leto is severe and is sort of an old-school dad in some ways, he loves the shit out of his son even more than his wife. He loves the shit out of his son. And this isn't a cheesy Hollywood uh, moment coming up here where he says, you know, even if you decide not to be the leader of Atreides, I hope you do. I I also was hesitant. Uh, You know, I basically loved the shit out of you and you're my son and that's enough for me. Um, which is exactly what you want to say uh, to give your son the choice, knowing that he will feel the call to duty that the Atreides always do. I don't know if I missed the quote. Here's the desert power. This is awesome. That big part of the book is, is Leto, um, Duke Leto's. He already knows about the desert power. Um, you know, they say here in Caladan, their home planet, they control land, air, and sea. Um, but they're going to need to control the desert uh, uh, and ally with the Fremen. He already has a sense for it, having not gone there. Um, and it's important that sort of the politics be known to Paul, even though they spend very little time on Arrakis before they're betrayed and he goes in the desert. Paul's going to have to figure out sort of the culture and the religion of the Fremen and his part in it. But the politics of how they're going to work as a house, even when the house is destroyed physically um, and in terms of, you know, the highest members of the house, their homes, you know, his, him and his mom barely survive, obviously. Um but, you know, there has to be something after. And while it seems like Duke Leto was saying, we're going to get there, we're going to ally with the Fremen, and that's how we're going to save ourselves from what I already know is the trap being set by the Emperor because people look for us, uh, look to us for leadership, as he says. Um, uh, they look, look to us for leadership, and that makes the uh, um, Emperor jealous. And, the, and them and the Harkonnens have hated each other for generations, uh, which is sold again, mostly through dialogue, exposition, and world building in the books, and they do the same here. Um, but, the, you know, they're obviously so opposite, you could see why. Uh, but also just typical blood feud stuff, uh, very, very influential on the houses of Game of Thrones, just like we see with the houses here. Um, by the way, uh, uh, I don't know if this is in the book, when he's giving Paul the speech here about, I didn't want to be... Uh, um, oh, right. I missed the line there where he talks about great leaders um, uh, are, are, uh, hear the call to leadership and answer it. They don't seek out power, um, but they're, you know, they see that they're needed to step up and they step up in order to help other people, essentially. And as we'll see, he risked the life of himself, his son, to save, you know, a couple dozen random spice miners um, uh, in one of the early um, exciting, uh, but also um, big um uh, character building scenes uh, when they go out to the desert and, and the spice crawler is going to be eaten by the worm and Dr. Kynes is there. We'll get to all that. Um, but anyways, uh, at one point here, Oscar Isaac as Duke Leto said, I wanted to be a pilot. I'm not sure if that's in the book. That has to, it, even if it's not, that has to be a nod to Poe Dameron as a pilot. And he has a little mischievous uh, smile on his face when he says it. Okay, this is great. So one of the things that they uh, didn't put in the film, one of the two or three things that they should for sure have, and that we know is in a deleted scene already because we've seen pictures of Josh Brolin here who plays Gurney Halleck with the loot um, is that Gurney is a musician and while he can fight like hell he's a little bit older which is part of why Duncan the younger stud um, Duncan Idaho is uh, by Jason, played by Jason Momoa um, is the war leader um, Gurney is, is an excellent fighter um, but also an amazing poet and musician um, and in the book like with Tolkien um, they didn't have tons of time in the movie um, 
although in the Lord of the Rings movies, we do get some songs as it goes along occasionally, and I'm sure we will, I think, in part two of this and going forward with Gurney, um, is that, you know, it's not that he's a court jester. He's here because he's advisor to the Duke. He also... um, something that's explained a little bit more in the dialogue, especially early on in the novel of Dune, is that all of these advisors are loyal to the Atreides, yes, because the Atreides give them reason to be loyal, but also because they've all been personally or their families or both been tortured or captured and hurt and almost killed, had people they love killed by the Harkonnens. Um, And that that also informs their loyalties to, to the loyalty to the Atreides, but specifically their choice to serve the Atreides. And Gurney sells it here um, with the intensity um, that you know he, they're fighting harder than they've ever fought before. He's really trying to go um, after uh, after Paul. Um, and he talks about, there's that great line that was in the trailers uh, that he says here, where he says, the Harkonnens, you don't know them. They're not human. They're brutal. Um, you know, as if they're another species called, you know, Homo brutalis, which is essentially, the tr- you know, they're basically are just killer animals as manifested by uh, Drax, um, uh, by Dave Batista as the beast Raban, the, the older nephew of, of Harkonnens. Um, but the, this is also important because uh, both because of his consultations with Duke Leto, um, but because of his own brains and experience, he knows um, that th- this this battle with the Harkonnens is far from over. In fact, it's accelerating, even though they're apparently taking over from the Harkonnens uh, in Arrakis. They're not human. They're brutal. There it is. Um, have to be ready. All right. So all of all of the top advisors, uh, at some level, recognize. Um, the danger that's coming. Um, now, I will say, um, okay, so here's Getty G- 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 Prime uh, with the Harkonnens. All of this is shot great. Um, the way Dave Batista is just a total insane maniacal, m- maniacal monster is straight from the book. It's similar, we see in the Dune miniseries. Um, uh, the guy who plays uh, their Mentat, whose name I forget, who's an excellent character actor, who's been in a lot of Nolan movies, is excellent um, in his role here as, as their uh, top advisor, Mentat. And while still in Skarsgård as a spectacular actor and put, you know, had to put on this fat suit and it would take like eight hours to put on, two hours to take off. Um, and it's just an excellent actor and performs as an excellent actor. Really the one part of this miniseries that, it is superior to this movie. Um, there's not a lot as good as the miniseries was, but one of them that's superior, but also more loyal to the books is that as evil as he is, the Baron himself, Baron Harkonnen, played here by Stellan Skarsgård, is actually somewhat flamboyant um, and talkative uh, in a very Shakespearean way where he, uh, he gives these big asides almost theatrically um you know he's he's a mustache twirler but he's enjoying the mustache twirling and he's enjoying life he's you know he he has slave boys he's very clearly gay um and especially gay for young boys who probably have no choice uh in the books and sleeps with slash rapes them or whatever i'll I'll leave it at that um but we know for sure that he is a a thing for young boys and men here we go the spaceship and the the meeting with the reverend mother um this is the first major scene in the book that gets you hooked in terms of okay what the fuck's going on in this wider cosmic 
uh, struggle, um, which involves the Bene Gesserit as well as the houses, but also Paul's lev- the level of Paul's power and the level that they will go to, the Bene Gesserit, that is, to create their Messiah, uh, but also um, their fear that it's happening a little too soon, sooner than they expected, because Jessica was supposed to have a daughter um, to mate with someone else to create that Messiah. She had a son because she actually loved the Duke. She's got split loyalties between the Duke and her house, uh, which they know is happening, but she's too important for them to kill or, or discard at this point. Um, and this is where Rebecca Ferguson first starts killing it and Chalamet when Chalamet is out to put his hand in the box with the gum Jabbar and have to act out in extreme pain without anything happening on screen. Up oh, there's Zendaya again. Um, uh, and, and her, it's the first time we also hear the, um, the fear speech, uh, fear is the mind killer, which they have smartly have Jessica be the one to do that throughout the film. And she gives the whole thing here while she's crying almost hysterically because she thinks she's killed her son. Um, and so this is this is where it really gets started. Um, but anyways, uh, this is Baron Harkonnen. You know, Dune is not funny. It's not supposed to be funny. There aren't jokes. Uh, there are sort of dark, humorous bits as the series goes along, especially in sort of the later books when they get really wacky in some ways or just weird. Um, it's supposed to be serious. Uh, and Duncan sort of j- joking around, joshing around is a nice little break at times um, in his bravado. Um, but, you know, the Baron is the sort of the one kind of entertaining um, one in both the miniseries and the book because he's sort of flamboyant and not stoic. You know, here they have Stone Skarsgård play him like, as I said, Fat Sauron. Um, here's Dr. Yue, um, who, um, so I should say, the f- you know, the fact that they're talking immediately that they know they're going to be betrayed and you can see it coming. The fact that there might be uh, a mole or a spy who turns out to be Dr. Yue um, in the way that Paul doesn't distrust him, but he's not so loving of him as he is with all the other advisor. You can see sort of the pain, has hesitancy behind the eyes of Yue. If you know it's coming or you've watched this multiple times, this actor is great as the doctor, the souk doctor, as they say. Um, and he actually gives a warning here about the Bene Gesserit, um, which his mom doesn't feel like he can give. Uh, and uh, there's the bull. Uh, they keep showing the bull throughout, and the fact that um, his grandfather, uh, Oscar Isaac's father, Duke Leto's father, and um, Paul's grandfather, while a great leader um, for the Atreides. Uh, by the way, these hand signs are straight from the book. They communicate with hand signs always, and it's actually, they're specific to the Atreides. So they're actually only taught to the highest members of the, uh, the Atreides royalty and their highest advisors. Um, they do have their own sort of hunting secret language, but the hand signs is the main way during points of danger to talk to one another. And another thing they set up along with the voice, capital T, capital V, um, uh, early on with Jessica. Um, and not much to say about this scene. I'm just going to let it play out. Um, and you guys can tune me out uh, or watch this. Again, this is straight from the book, and this is almost how it was shot uh, to a T uh, with... Um, in the miniseries. Now, what happens is, in the miniseries, he's not so easily brought to his knees by the voice. Uh, but he does react this way where he says, fuck you, why are you using the voice on me? Um, and the Reverend Mother here, well, not the best person, morality-wise, in the world, in terms of her motives and how she acts, as we'll see, uh, is already curious um, by this boy. 
Um, and he's about to experience really horrible pain and be literally a millimeter from death with the test. Now, all the sisters go through this test. Now, we know in real life that women actually have a higher tolerance for pain than men. If you give a woman and a man who are average um, equal pain, the woman's going to be able to tolerate it. Um, it's thought that that's because of, uh, of birth, pregnancy and birth especially. <laughs> you know, a, a man doesn't have the pain tolerance uh, to, to give birth. Um, there might be other reasons as well. Um, and one of the lines they don't give here, uh, I mean, when, when the Reverend Mother is talking to Jessica in the next scene, Jessica said, you have to go that far. Um, but in the original, she actually says to Paul, I think the Reverend Mother uh, to Paul, uh, literally says, I- I've actually never gone that far, even with my best students uh, in the sisterhood. That was the furthest I've gone with anyone. She's really trying to kill him here. She's trying to test him to the furthest limits. Who knows if she planned ahead of time to do it with the box. But he's not just suffering what the top sisters have suffered in a way that most men can't and, and may not be forced to. But she's going further with him. Um, and you'll see the fear on this is amazing acting by both of these two lead characters here. Rebecca Ferguson just killing it with the crying, holding the stomach. Um, she's going to start doing the fear. Um, uh, fear is the mind killer uh, mantra to, to calm herself. Amazing acting by Chalamet. He's just sitting there with his hand in the box. And uh, look at this. He's shaking and crying. But he's about to scare the shit out of the Reverend Mother uh, because he's gonna. It, this is going to force him into a, a, a very high level of prescience, which even his father recognizes that he's not the same after this. Uh, you know, this has, again, unforeseen and unintended consequences from the sisterhood, is that not only does he survive this, even though he's a messiah that came too soon in, in their own plans, um, but he's about to have uh, a, a jump in the level and clarity and intensity right there with the fire of his prescience, and the Reverend Mother can feel it and see it. Um, and now he looks her right in the eye, and he's completely mastered the, f- the, the pain. She could even turn up the pain more at this point, uh, but he's, you know, he's using the prophecy to take himself, um, you know, the separation of mind and body. He's now in the, the mind world, even though he's looking right at her in the face. Um, and mom can sort of sense it as she gets through the mantra. Uh, you can see what it would, what he thinks has happened is his hand has been completely burned off by this. How could it not be with that type of pain? So the feeling of fire, uh, uh, ignites, if you will, the prophecy of fire and the burning that's going to happen on Arrakis and throughout the galaxy. And he says, she says enough almost to herself as if, you know, as if she's saying it to him. Um, and like I said, that they say in the book, uh, oh, there we go, uh, you know, she says in the book to one of them or both of them uh, that they've never gone this far before. I said I wasn't going to talk about the scene, but goddamn, is it amazing. If you haven't bought in yet to the lead characters, uh, Timothy Chalamet as, as Paul Trades and uh, Jessica being played, Jessica being played by the great Rebecca Ferguson, uh, you certainly are bought in by now. And, uh, you know, again, as I talked about in the intro, I'm blown away by how much the average watcher understood in this film, but also liked or loved this movie so much more quickly and in such higher numbers and with higher intensity than I expected. Um, And uh, here it is. Um, Training him in the way, right? She doesn't say, why are you been training him in the way? You shouldn't be. She just says, I know you have. And the way she says it means that like she kind of know what was going on, but until this moment um, uh, with the way he resisted the pain and his, his, uh, you know, open, 
sort of uh, almost like he's sending mind waves out to sensitive others of his level of prophecy and the prophecies he's having. Anyways, what I was going to say was we who have been following this closely knew that they had greenlit uh, a Bene Gesserit a prequel series, which has been done in sort of the books by Frank Herbert's son, Brian Herbert, which are not amazing books, but do have some really cool lore. They have talked a lot about the sisterhood in the millennia and centuries leading up to this. Um, but, uh, you know, it will be even cooler on screen and I'm sure be leading up more in the modern uh, prehistory um, or I should say pre-Dune history uh, to, to Jessica. Right, there it is. He had to be tested to the limits and really they go beyond the limits, as I said. That's enough exposition there. And again, this uh, I won't harp on this the whole time. That's a great way of bringing in something in the book that's a longer discussion about how far she went. Should she have gone that far? What does it mean? Just by saying, just by having these two uh, talk to each other and Jessica saying, um, why did you have to go that far? And the reverend um, uh, mother saying, uh, I detest him to the limits. Uh, I have, didn't comment on the human thing about how they are, you know, uh, testing for humans, um, which, you know, I was going to say implies, which basically is saying, you know, 99.99% of the population are just animals, which we are. Uh, but part of them grooming the Messiah is to see if they can groom someone who, you know, has reached a sort of enlightenment beyond just bestiality, uh, bestiality, uh, beyond just being bestial, um, uh, you know, monkeys with guns, essentially, which is what humanity seems like a lot of the time uh, that she was, you know, it's very sadistic. This happens in, in Firefly. I talk about my Firefly commentaries with, with Nith. Niska, the big baddie there. Um, no, uh, sadistic philosophy, sadistic in sort of the philosophical sense of, of sadism, of torture uh, for torture's sake, um, uh, uh, you know, postulates that you don't know if you're really human unless you survive a certain amount of pain or torture. Uh, on the surface, that's horrifying, and bad guys use that to justify all sorts of stuff. Um, but here she was just trying to activate the, the messianic stuff. And here he understands, um, right? In this conversation, this is awesome. They put it in a haze. So it's almost as if they're talking telepathically. They don't want you to be concentrated at all about the background here. They just want the conversation between the two of them. They, that, they do have kind of a, 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 a telepathic link, um, you don't know everything, but just the look in his eyes, he's already become more world weary, but wiser and under, and, uh, we don't know if the, if the term, the one or the Messiah or the Mahdi has even been mentioned to him before, but now he knows, right? Powerful enough to bridge time and space. Jessica says, and here it comes past and future. Okay. So why do they want someone that powerful, right? Who can help us into a better future. And that better future is something that's called the golden path, which doesn't come up in this film. It might not come up in the next film, but it's a big part of Dune Messiah and Children of Dune, books two and three. Um, and the extent to which Paul can see and activate the golden path, which is sort of a forced evolution of the human race, which has become stagnant, um, uh, I'm going to save for now because it's complicated. He doesn't do it by himself. Let's just put it that way. Um, and uh, so, again, that test had unintended consequences. It, it started as a test by the Reverend Mother uh, um, representing the Bene Gesserit. Oh, I meant to say, uh, they, they, were, they're waiting to see, they were waiting to see if this movie was successful before fully greenlighting the Bene Gesserit series on HBO. They were fully ready to do so, which was one of many signs that they had high um, expectations, but real, um, you know, hope, um, uh, or, you know, um, even more than hope that this would do well, start doing TV stuff. Uh, but, you know, everyone, 
who's new to this property, you gotta love the super powerful women like Yennefer and the Enchantresses in uh, um, in uh, uh, in The Witcher. That there are these super powerful, so, some evil, um, some good, like his mom, uh, some unsure, who are manipulating things and have been manipulating things behind the scenes. And so, uh, women in particular, but all watchers who have fallen in love with this property for the first time through the movie, are so psyched now that we have the Benny Gesserit series, which I'm sure is now in full swing pre-production, and they're going to get out as soon as possible because people are not going to be able to wait two years for the new movie, uh, given all uh, the excitement and, and loving response. Um, and we'll get some TV stuff in, in the meantime, which will help also explain some of this as well, which is great. Um, by the way, I, I did want to mention here, um, 34 minutes in almost, we're still on Kaladin. They spend almost no time in Kaladin, their home planet in the book, uh, other than the a little bit with Jessica and then the scene with the Reverend Mother. Here comes the ship. And this is great. You're like, okay, he's trying to save money by not showing them get on the ship and fly the ship and enter hyperspace. But this is how it is in the books. Frank Herbert, not until the later books, he spent no time on space travel. And just showing all these dropships here is spectacular. Um, the dropships are mentioned in the books, but Villeneuve really focused on, well, how would people get uh, down to the planet and back up to the spaceships as opposed to focusing on the ships themselves, which is exactly how Herbert felt, and I'm glad they did it. This isn't Star Wars, and it's not Star Trek. Herbert spends 99% on, on planets um, or in visions, and that's where it should be. Here is the army. Um, uh, but what I was going to say was, you know, it was smart, especially knowing that there are two. Here's the first look of love between these two, even though she's veiled. You know, um, you had to sell these two had chemistry with almost no scenes together. Um, and I think Isaac and Ferguson do that uh, uh, for sure. Um, but if you wanted to have more stuff happen here on Arrakis before they're betrayed, um, where they're in charge, and even though, it, like in the book, the Duke and his people know that this is a giant trap. Uh, they spend enough time here um, in, in the novel uh, where you, you, like them, get just comfortable enough and they have these big dinners with politicking and uh, the bagpipes is great. I didn't expect this. It would make so much sense that the Atreides, though, that bagpipes would be part of their uh, you know, royal um, uh, entourage and sort of theme, if you would. Not just musical theme, but theme in general. Uh, it's actually associated with, with Gurney a little bit, being the musician. Uh, but, you know, th they're sort of like the Scots as portrayed in, in Braveheart, like um, that they, uh, you know, their they're natural Caledon sort of looks like Northern Ireland or Northern Scotland, uh, but they're actually incredibly intelligent and even educated when they get the chance. Um, and they're the most noble ones, you know? So if, if the Harkonnens and the Emperor are, you know, the English in Longshanks, you know, these guys are like the Braveheart Scots to Thufir, right? Shows his love um, of Thufir. Um, they try and maybe do a some slight misdirect where you think Thufir, um, because he looks nervous and is sweating throughout, that he might be the traitor, or that if there is a traitor, it would be him. Um, but anyways, really quickly here, before we start uh, look, you know, looking over what, what they have left, which is mostly in ruins by the Harkonnens, which is already confirming Duke Leto's um, uh, feeling ahead of time that they would be betrayed, um, uh, they could have done 15 or 20 minutes on Kaladin, uh, even if they wanted to limit to two and a half hours, this first part, which they did, and which was a great idea, not do three hours. Um, they could have cut 10 minutes of time on Kaladin and done some of that here on Dune, 
and spent more time between the first landing and the betrayal. And there's actually way more time in the miniseries, which was sort of three one and a half hour bits. Uh, it was three two two hour bits, but with commercials, you know, it runs a total of like four four and a half hours. Um, they spend more time inside just the palace. You know, they decorate the palace with their flags and their artwork, and they have dinners and they meet representatives of the emperor. Um, uh, what I was going to say earlier was right. Okay, really quickly, they're already you know saying Mahdi, Mahdi, or Lisan Al Gaib. You know all the various names of uh, for the Messiah. Uh, Thufir says, "Oh, just ignore them. You know they're just the locals, and they're forced. You know they've been forced to be here in the past uh, by people like the Harkonnens." Um, uh, but Paul's going to ask, I think, Jessica here, and she's going to just tell him. Um, and to her credit, Jessica, once she sees Paul is, is learning how what's going on behind the scenes and with him faster than expected, she starts revealing information as soon as he asks. She doesn't volunteer it without being asked, but she will tell him. And he's constantly asking more questions. These are the ornithopters. One of the th- technology things which you know sounded cool on the page while reading the books, but you couldn't quite envision it because it was so different than anything we've seen. They totally nailed. This made total sense, uh, the visualization of the, the Thopter's movement and wings and so forth here. Um, but anyways, if, if you cut out 10 minutes, uh, not cut out 10 minutes of content, but if you had 10 minutes of the 30 minutes on Kaladin that happened here on the planet of Dune, we could have had them have a little bit more time before being betrayed and destroyed on Dune. Um, and, you know, part of the thing in the book is they do get a little comfortable, even though they come here knowing that they are probably in a trap. Um, you know, uh, before the, the betrayal in this movie, uh, in the last conversation uh, between Jessica and Duke Leto, before he's betrayed by UA and then brought to the, the, the Baron and so on and so forth, he says, I just thought we would have more time. Um, which is, again, by selling through performance uh, that while he was prepared for betrayal um, and smelled it coming a mile, you know, a, a million miles away, so to speak, he thought that they would have more time. And indeed, in the book, they do have more time. It's cool to see the palace. Um, the the uh, daughter, um, the oldest daughter of the emperor, which Paul mentions really quickly later on as he starts politicking uh, and trying to figure out how to stop this galactic war, says, well, maybe I can marry the unmarried daughter of the emperor. Um, that's Princess Erlan. She's a huge character. And in the books and in the miniseries, uh, Paul meets her and they have some really interesting interactions. Um, and she remains important um, because she ends up being in his entourage after the first book. Um, and uh, caught between, you know, people around her t- saying to betray him uh, or at least control him uh, and bring her you know, her house, the emperor's house, you know, back into full power. Uh, but she does really fall in love with him, and he falls in love only and ever with Chani. It's an interesting dynamic. Um, and to go back to the very beginning, where Chani gives the opening a uh, bit, you know, describing the planet of Dune and what Spice is and the conflict with the emperor and so forth, uh, the, the woman who's excellent, who plays Princess Irulan um, in the miniseries, uh, gives that same speech. Um, but again, we don't have that character in this f- first part here. We definitely will have her in the second part. There's two or three huge characters that are not introduced here um, uh, who will be in the second part because they're needed for, for plot purposes. Uh, I'll mention she's definitely one, Princess Erlan and the Emperor himself, who they haven't shown yet. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's one of those cuts 
um, that was very intentional and, and makes sense. Um, but if they'd had the big dinner scene, which is pretty memorable from the book and is very Games of Thronesy, you know, it would have been five minutes long, six minutes long, and would have established that they're all, you know, um, not just established, but would show, not tell, um, that there are a bunch of houses and not all of them are evil and some of them are pretending to cozy up to the Atreides but are lying and some of them actually sympathize with the Atreides but they're not going to go against the Emperor and some don't know and there's like a trade federation, a trade union called Chelam um, and the Navigators are their own thing. It's very Game of Thronesy and um, an excellent political dialogue where, um, as I say in my Witcher commentaries, um, uh, you know, when you're reading the Witcher books, uh, before, you know, right before they're betrayed, the good guys are betrayed in The Witcher, and the second um, or, or third book of The Witcher, um, another great character here, the Shad- Shadout Mapes, who they establish, you know, straight through filming and performance here as both important and cool, have way more time to spend time with her and how loyal she is. Um, but also that she's going to say straight up that she thinks that this is the Messiah and the mother of the Messiah. And uh, both this woman of color here and uh, Ferguson as, um, uh, as Lady Jessica play this great. Um, uh, But anyways, now I'm caught up in the film. Um, So uh, the fact that they, you know, aren't bringing in the emperor and his daughter or daughters uh, physically, only mentioning them offhand, it makes total sense um, in terms of getting this within two and a half hours. But it would have been nice to maybe have this, the dinner scene, to just sort of see that they were starting to feel a little at home, but also a little comfortable in in Arrakis. because chronologically, it takes uh, the trap isn't sprung quite so quickly as is implied um, in this film. Uh, but I'm totally fine because you know the main complaint of people who like but don't love it, or like my dad who liked it but was sort of confused, is that you know we're now 45 minutes in and it takes at least half the film before the big action gets going. Um, and that it's sort of a slow burn. Now, as someone who's read the book, uh, in addition to seeing all the various other movies and miniseries and so forth, it actually, compared to the book, moves quite quickly in terms of getting to the betrayal, the destruction, and the escape of Jessica and Paul into the desert. Um, But I could see how this would be kind of a slow burn. Uh, And so, for example, I don't know if this scene was needed in terms of this character, even though she's a great, small, but important character in the books, the shout-out Mapes, and is sort of the, you know, the sort of the physical link of someone who's in the palace but it's also a hardcore, you know, native Fremen um, in that this is, they start trusting the Fremen sort of through her. Um, here's the blue eyes. I love that they didn't do the full glazed over blue. Um, they also did, you know, a, a not over the top version of the miniseries. They had way more money here, obviously, and better technology 20 years later. Um, but they really just make it... Um, they say blue on blue in the book. And so there's actually two shades of blue. So they have the blue irises as if you just had really blue eyes, but then also the outside of your eyes would have a shade of blue as well. Here's a great thing with the palm trees. And of course they get burned later. Um, uh, Having to do with the preciousness of the water, having to do with the fact that the Fremen are so connected to their environment. Um, But, uh, you know, while again, this seems like a white man's burden thing early on, and oh, the foreigner is going to come in and save all the brown people and become the Messiah, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) You know, the expectation of of that, just like in Heart of Darkness, um, ends up being upturned uh, and spun on its head in totally different directions than you'd think. And one of them is the Fremens aren't just wiser in sort of the uh, classic stereotype of Native Americans or whatever, you know, the noble savage. 
um, and they are noble, and they can be savages in terms of fighting, um, but they're actually extremely culturally and intellectually smart uh, and wise and hip to what's going on. Um, old dream. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately, this will be one of the teases that's general about the series going forward is, uh, you know, Paul does accept that he, he's going to become a, a leader for them, both politically, but especially religiously, spiritually, mystically, and so forth. Um, but it's, it's quickly usurped uh, and, um, uh, uh, how do I put this? Um, not reclaimed. It's claimed and um, made to work. Here comes the, the hunter-seeker scene, which is so memorable in the books, which they also nailed in the miniseries. Um, and it's the first uh, attempt of assassination. Um, and, uh, you know, now we really know that there's inside insider spies um, and we're pushing towards the, the full betrayal and destruction. Um, but, uh, you know, but the Fremen make it work for them, the whole Muad'Dib, uh, Kwisach Haderach, Messiah prophecy thing. It's not that they're not full-on believers. There are some who are very much become religious fundamentalists and they end up pushing Paul to do things he doesn't necessarily want to, even though he's technically the Messiah. You know, the Messiah becomes the tool of the people who believe in the Messiah as much as vice versa, which is important because that's true in history and it's true here. Um, but also the, the characters like Stilgar, played by Javier Bardem, while they believe in the prophecy in sort of a general sense, the, 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 the wiser and more, you know, um, uh, uh, not smarter. The wiser of the Fremen um, are, are very self-aware of the manipulation um, of their religion, and they flip it on its head constantly in different ways at different times, with different versions of different intensities. Um, not because they hate Paul, although some of them do, you know, uh, become kind of terrorists against the Fremen who are seen now as terrorists. You know, the Fremen ultimately take over. If you can't see that Paul and the Fremen are going to fight back and try and, you know, uh, get what's theirs or, or, or uh, um, give the Emperor and the Harkonnens w w what they deserve and, you know, and, and, and restructure, you know, the politics, so to speak, it, that's clearly going to happen in part two. Uh, and so that's really not a spoiler. It's obviously that that's what's going to happen. But Paul still has to go a journey in the desert and become fully Fremen. Uh, and one of the things in the books is that it doesn't, it's not like he's a guy from a planet who comes and is then, you know, uh, yeah, more great stuff here from all the leads. Um, you know, it's not just that he's the white man's burden come to save all the brown people in the desert through manipulation of religion, which it seems like, um, but really that his soul is Fremen, um, in a very real way. And, uh, in the book, he's somewhat mad that they have to leave his home planet of Caledon. But I like in this one how he's excited to get to, to Arrakis um, uh, in, in the early parts of this movie. And that actually jibes with his character uh, quite a bit. Um, uh, and we see at the very end, because of his dreams of Chani and just his connection with Stilgar and the Fremen and the Fremen ways, and he tells his mom, no, we're not going to escape. We're going to go into the desert. This is our destiny. Um, you know, Jessica might still be thinking that she's manipulating, but Paul never does. He treats them all as equals. He wishes they would do the same. Uh, obviously, the ones close to him, like I was saying, Stilgar is aware that, you know, Paul has become a religious leader for them, but also knows... Uh, in a self-aware way, you know, the 
the manipulations that are happening um, and uh, how complex the situation is. Um, and that's important because they have to keep challenging Paul. And he wants the top people to challenge him um, that just because he's having these prophecies and just because he's seen as the Mahdi, the Messiah, that they shouldn't, he doesn't want them to just do what, everything he says. And he doesn't want to lose sight. He doesn't want to get caught up in the hype, so to speak. Here's the bargain with the devil um, that even the smart Reverend Mother accepts way too easily. Um, with, with the Harkonnens. Uh, and so, um, you know, all I'll say is people of color uh, in this country, especially but around the world, but people of color, uh, Asians and Africans and so forth, are absolutely loving this movie. And partially, you know, you have to cast the best actors and people who have huge brains in real life, like Zendaya and, uh, and Bardem, uh, to help with that transition. But, you know, other than a few uber-liberal, pretentious, up-their-ass pieces of shit, like the New Yorker, for example, who still think this is a heart of darkness thing, which is also misrepresented. The heart of darkness is about the evils of imperialism. It's not about how savage and primitive Africans are. It's about how savage and primitive Europeans are, actually. Um, and so that's a wrong mis- that's a misreading of heart of darkness, and it's also a misreading of what's going on in Dune. Um, uh, but... Uh, you know, just like I've been keep saying that the the love for this is so much greater in intensity and in numbers of people than I expected it, especially this quickly in this first film um, from people new to to this. But the the lack of any charges of racism or so forth uh, means that people are really understanding what's happening here, which that this is a massive critique of Euro American imperialism throughout history. Uh, and it's not just the noble savage thing with the Fremen, um, but that, uh, you know, just because the Fremen are brown people and these are mostly white people, it's, you know, and the white guy's the messiah, people have a sense already that this isn't going to go the way you think with the, with the normal white, great white father, if you will, with Paul. Um, and uh, there are a couple scenes coming up, especially with the woman, the African-American woman who plays, or uh, the black woman who plays uh, Kynes, Dr. Kynes, where they start selling, that they know a lot more than they're letting on to. And they're going to keep testing Paul before they, they, they let him be the Messiah. And part of the reason they let him be the Messiah and don't just accept him as the Messiah is they're, they're calling the shots and they'll continue to call the shots. And Paul loses control of them, but that's on down the road. I love it. Here they go on their first, uh, first trip. Oh, is this Duncan coming back? All right, here's the thopter. I think this is Duncan coming back. We see again Paul's love and really everyone's love for him. He's going to show them all the cool gadgets. He's going to talk about the noble savages, yes. Um, but again, the way it's delivered is it's a mutual respect, if not... Uh, inferiors, not inferior, but you know, the, yes, the Fremen are great fighters, but in some ways they're even better than us. And we'll, of course, see that ourselves when we spend uh, so much time with them in the next film and beyond. For four weeks, I live with the Fremen. All right. Siege. Hey, this is great. Duncan establishes contact, as in the book, um, and they really honed in. Um, again, th- it's not just how this movie was shot and what made it and what didn't make it and what was never supposed to be in it, but knowing sur- the critical parts of the lore and the story and the characters, this is a big one. This is one of the only times we see them all together and smiling. 
Um, and, uh, you know, Duncan seeming sort of cocky and, you know, brash uh, early on. He's, you can see how humbled he is here um, by the experience. And they fight like demons, right? Desert power, yep. Yeah, Duke Leto is, is so right about that. Okay, so uh, Momoa, among others, have talked about uh, this scene uh, being their best and, and the fav- <laughs> favorite. And it's hard to argue, even though it doesn't seem so big early on. And there's a few reasons, though, if you just look at it, the paper writes the best. One, it's Bardem's only scene until the end, and he's a spectacular, one of the greatest actors ever, you know, arguably the best actor in this movie, best natural actor. Two, this is one of the only humorous things to happen. And while it's not funny in sort of this way in the book, the spitting uh, being a sign of respect and them almost, you know, killing him until they realize that it's a sign of respect, not a diss. Let me look at Bardem. He just, even with the blue eyes, just conveys, he doesn't even want to be here. It's so perfunctory. Um, but also the way that uh, Duncan, right, they're about to kill him. Duncan steps in. Thank you, Stilgar, for the gift of your body's moisture. He's like, almost like, you know, you can see him verbally, and he looks at the Duke and spits, and this is great, Oscar Isaac. This is great, because... This is his only time to be funny, Oscar Isaac, but he, he really hocks a loogie. <laughs> and I laughed in the theater. And, you know, part of it is it's like in Christopher Nolan's Batman movies or most of his movies, there's so little humor or jokes that when you get one and it's really good, um, uh, and, and, you know, delivered great by, by the actors, you know, you, you almost laugh more because you're so ready for like any sort of laugh or humor entertainment. Um. Right. This is great. He says, we respect the hell out of you. We, uh, Stilgar says, just stay away from our sieges. Um, and and Leto says, look, I'll be honest. You know, We have to get the spice. We might be called into the desert, but the sieges are yours, and we will never bother you. Uh, Stilgar sums him up as honorable. He immediately says, I have other places to be, uh, which again is a great cue that the Fremen have a lot more going on than just roaming the desert for sandworms and killing bad guys and, and so forth. He's like, oh, he's like bored by having to be here. It shows how much Duncan did connect that he was able to even get Stilgar to this audience. Stilgar, thinking about it? And uh, I, I'm not going to harp on it, guys, and they're great at the end of this film, but Bardem as, as Delgar and Chani, played by Zanaya, are equal leads in part two of this film um, and will be in Dune Messiah part three as well, if and when that's made, as Paul and Jessica, played by Chalamet and Ferguson. Uh, they're sort of the big four. And so while it's sort of a cock tease for watchers uh, who are new to this, because everyone loves Bardem and everyone loves Zendaya pretty much across the board, um, uh, you know, they couldn't have made this in, in one movie, guys. And, and th- you know, they did as much as possible to get um, those two lead Fremen characters in uh, and set up, you know, that they're going to be just as big as the leads that we've already set up that aren't killed during the betrayal, or we think we were killed during the betrayal. Um, in part two of this, here's the tech stuff. Paul's been studying it. Again, you got to watch closely because the scenes, even if the movie feels like it's slow early on, the scenes are fast, and it's not always clear when you're getting important exposition. Um, but Paul, having studied the, the worms in the desert, but here having a, a sort of bro locker room moment with the soldiers and Duncan um, and, and Gurney, um, 
you know, it, it would be so easy in a Game of Thrones type situation to make everyone distrust and dislike each other. Like, you know, Duncan being like, oh, Gurney's just an old man, and Gurney being like, oh, I hate this brash young in Duncan Idaho. But they all really like each other and get along, and that's another part of the charisma and brilliance of leadership of, of the Atreides. Um, all right, there's the sand crawler and the thing that the, the uh, carryall, or what are they called, that picks up the sand crawler. So practical. Um, uh, but anyways, we need to learn about some of the technology because when Paul and his mom have to go into the desert and use, use tents and the still suits and the thumpers and so forth, start understanding the technological scenario. Whereas up till now, we got a little bit of space stuff and, of course, the knives, knife fighting. Um, I'm not going to talk about the knife fighting. People seem to pick it up for the most part, which is, uh, you know, they, they all wear personal shields, which is why guns don't really work because guns will either bounce off the shield or they'll just cause an explosion, which will kill everybody. So you have to use knives. It's the only way to get through the shields. But even the knives will bounce off, so you have to, you know, stab full. Um, we're gonna get to this woman in a second. She's spectacular. Um, you know, you either have to go. F- you basically have to go full strength right up to the point of the shield and then slow it down to get through the shield and then speed it up to stab the person. And they sell it great during the training with Paul. Now, once the full-on brawl happens, whether it's Brolin and the Atreides soldiers or, or Duncan taking down a million Sardaukar uh, warriors, um, you have to just go for knife fighting and, and the shield's just, you know, going on. It's, it's like in Star Wars A New Hope. You know, they're just lasers firing everywhere during action scenes. Um, uh, you just have to have the insanity going. But they sell early that knife fighting with the, sh- with the shields in play isn't just normal knife fighting. Um, and in fact, in the desert, you can't have shields because it calls the worm. And Paul actually has to get used to the f- uh, fact that you are doing straight knife fighting with no protection uh, uh, as he fights um, uh, both Fremen and non-Fremen in the desert. So this was the one major change. I, I don't know a single person who's a fan of the books that <laughs> cared about this, um, partially because you have to read the books all of the books and understand them and read them multiple times to understand how important this character, Leah Kynes, is. Um, but also this woman's performance um, was actually absolutely spectacular. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, okay, I, I, okay. <laughs> God, it's going so fast. I missed before that after Bardem says, you're very honorable, Duke Atreides, but I got to go. See ya. He looks at Paul and very casually but very meaningfully says, I've seen you or I know you. And something says, I recognize you, walks away. And she just said in their language, uh, one of the parts of the myth and the prophecies. And so the reason this character is so important is, yes, she's got blue eyes and she's got a connection with the Fremen, obviously, but she is an off-worlder in terms of birth and she seems to be serving the emperor. So she's really the link in terms of the viewer the reader um, as someone who will be what Paul becomes, who's fully between off-worlder status and Fremen status. Now, the secret, you know, in her scenes here and going forward before she, you know, joins their side, she keeps saying, I'm neutral, I can't do anything. The, the, the reveal, um, one of the only big twists, I think, uh, from a traditional standpoint that is in the book and they do great here is you think Kynes is trying to stay neutral, even though it's clear she develops respect for the father and son very quickly and their understanding of the situation, how honorable they are when they try and save the people coming up. Here's the dust cloud. Um, really quickly, this was... Uh, not only does this feel exactly how this very exciting scene in the book feels, but it's also shot almost exactly how it's shot in the sci-fi series. This is a case where I don't know if this is a nod to the sci-fi miniseries and how well they shot this scene there, or whether it's just, in both cases, trying to be super loyal to how this 
big first action scene takes place at the rescue and, um, and so forth, uh, th- th- their interpretations are just similar from the book. Um, I know for sure that Chalamet has seen the miniseries in the original movie. I know for sure that Denis has. Um, and uh, But anyways... The big secret of kinds is not that she's holding back from them because she's a servant of the emperor. It's she's holding back from them because she's actually protecting the secrets of the Fremen. And she's actually considered herself full Fremen at this point, which is why the emperor's people realize it and try and kill her um, uh, later uh, when she dies in the film. Uh, But her other secret is hiding that she's using her planetology knowledge along with the Fremen's um, uh, on the ground experience and knowledge over the centuries um, in terms of the greening of Arrakis. And actually that Arrakis used to be long, long, long ago, a green paradise. And now it's all desert and sandworms and they're trying to green it again, potentially, which opens up a huge ecological discussion, both within the book and the sort of meta narrative, which is it would be great to not have to worry about water to the point where you're like drinking your own piss through a still suit to survive. And the sandworms can only survive in the desert and water kills them. So there's no spice without them. Um, so, you know, it, it's sort of an unresolved thing that goes back and forth. You know, should we green this planet so the inhabitants are more comfortable? Um, but then we won't have spice. So then what happens to civilization? And uh, they do green the planets, <laughs> but uh, it's not done or manifested uh, to either us, the, we the readers, or to the people inside the story uh, in the way that they would expect uh, or you could possibly see coming. And it's done for political reasons. And uh, ultimately, um, I'm not going to say when or how, but even though this, the greening of this planet happens, it's not in the next few books or what would be the next few movies, um, but it does happen, and ultimately it does go back to desert Arrakis mostly, and the sandworms do survive, um, although they go way down in population. Um, and, but this is part of the Golden Path and the Atreides, but not necessarily these characters who are in the sort of the early stage uh, with kinds here in the early stage of ecological, massive ecological change that's almost on the level of terraforming Mars, uh, to be honest. Like, that's how deep the desert um, it has set in here. Um, but also that it is possible uh, to, to terraform um, is important. It's, you know, the dream. It's like, you know, how Jerusalem will be rebuilt upon the coming of the Messiah and so forth. Um, so again, Kynes here is important because she bridges the mystical and the religious with the scientific um, and the um, uh, rational um, or, or so forth. Um, and so that's the big secret. And so when the Atreides are destroyed in a way that shocks even Kynes, who's supposed to be representing the emperor, and she joins them and tries to help them to the extent that she can before dying, she shows them the project that she's been hiding. And you realize that she's pretending to serve the emperor, and that's what she's hiding, uh, is secrets for the emperor. But she's hiding from both the emperor and lying to the emperor, really, as well as these guys um, that she's protecting the Fremen. Now, in the book, it's played by a man. Uh, and the fact that she's a black woman instead of a white man, or, or just a man in general, in the book, that's less important than the fact that Liet Kynes, the man in the book, here's the first great ornithopter flying, the, the pilot, Poe Dameron. Now, Leto does fly. Leto flies in the book. He flies in the miniseries. He, you know, he does want to be a great pilot, and it's important because Paul has to fly later um, uh, and be good at it. And so it's important that his dad does. Um, and uh, after they... Uh, you know, risk after Leto risks his life and his son and the planetary representative of the emperor and kinds and some of his top advisors to save, you know, 20 random folks here who might just be smugglers, not even full citizens. Uh, 
and says, fuck the spice. The one line they cut out, uh, which I don't understand, which is in the book in the miniseries, is I think to himself, Liet Kynes in the book thinks, oh man, <laughs> I, I mean, this new Duke, he just got here. He's already risking his life and the life of his son and entire you know, kingdom and house to save a few random people. And Kynes says to himself, you know, this is someone who could command legions. This is someone who could command galaxies. Um, and so again, we're being... Uh, you know, even though Alito, Duke Leto here, Oscar Isaac Duke Leto, you know, was never going to be the Messiah because it's just as important as Jessica's blood. Another thing I, I didn't comment on earlier, I didn't have time, is that the Reverend Mother told Paul pretty straight up that, you know, his blood is important, uh, not just because of his dad, but at least as much because of his mom with the Bene Gesserit. That's the whole point, um, is breeding uh, uh, sort of traditional royalty as well as um, what's going on with the Bene Gesserit genetics project throughout the centuries and the millennium. Uh, and Kynes uh, recognizes that insane leadership potential that just comes naturally to people as as honorable. And they can't help being so honorable and wanting to help people as bad as most houses are and as bad as the galaxy is. Uh, and that gets passed on to Paul, which is why when there is a holy war in his name, spoiler alert, coming up very soon, uh, I mean, you know, when he has his big vision in the desert, when he's stuck in the tent with his mom, Jessica, you know, he, he really prophesi- prophesizes generally what's going to happen in the future. And uh, while some of the details are different, oh, here's the first teasing of the worm. Uh, which so smartly we don't get the full vision of the worm till much later. You don't want to blow your load here. You want to build up the, the the mystery, even for those of us who know about the worm. We went to see what it would look like, and it looks amazing. Um, uh, but, but again, showing leadership potential through the dad and that being passed on to the kid. Now, here's his first waking dream. And the shots in all the trailers. <laughs> this was the first time I realized he had freckles. It's like, God, he's so good looking already. And he's got freckles in just the right places on the nose and cheek there with the amazing hair and cheekbones. Looking a little bit like Elijah Wood with the dust on the face. Kwisach Haderach. So a lot of it's been Arabic so far. Kwisach Haderach is actually a mystical term from the Kamala, from old Jewish mysticism that has to do with uh, derech um, means way. Um, so it's basically saying the one who... Uh, uh, the the one who transcends the way, uh, more specifically, the one who transcends space and time, past and future, as his mom said. It's another word for the Messiah. Kwisah Tadrach becomes basically the term for the Messiah, even though there's Lisan al-Gaib and, and Mahdi and so forth. Um, it's the, the Hebrew term, actually, Kwisah Tadrach, which becomes the main term for the Messiah going forward. Um, because even once he's seen by both the Fremen good guys and the you know Imperial Harkonnen bad guys going forward as the Messiah of some sort, um, whether fake or real, here he looks like Killian Murphy. Jesus Christ, this is like Killian Murphy. I'm just noticing it. Um, oh, that's a great shot. Brolin comes out of nowhere. Um, and his dad yells at him, but his dad also knows that he's having visions. So this is the first open eye visions. Um, but, uh, you know, immediately upon be- becoming or heading to becoming the Messiah, uh, yeah, the big mound with the sandworm, people start, uh, Paul, I- I- among all of them, is questioning. Paul always questions whether he is the Messiah whether there really could be a Messiah, what that means and the burden of the whole thing. And, and, and it's that amazing scene between Jessica and the tent, which is arguably the greatest dramatic scene of the film and is a lot of people's favorite scenes, especially people new to the property, just the sheer acting uh, virtuosity of uh, of Chalamet talking. It's the first time we see him really talk about the visions. It always starts with the girl, Chani, but now he's seeing being having blue eyes, being a Fremen, killing people in a huge war. He talks about a holy war burning the galaxy. 
Um, this is the prayer as the as the crawler goes down. Um, that's a shot, awesome shot there with with uh, Gurney holding Paul on the open uh, cargo bay door. Um, but the, the blessing of the maker coming and going um, by uh, by kinds, just another signal about how how native quote unquote she is, how fremen she is. That's awesome. We do actually get the full view of the, of the worm here, really, with the teeth. Now, I will say, I watched this on my dad's projection screen, this movie. Um, I don't love projection screens, and it was set way too dark. Um, I, I'm Watching with my dad, you couldn't even see half the scenes. And the theater, while there's a, you know, the whole thing is brown and black, basically, with the bright sunlight, um, with the filter in this film, which was the right call. Um, and which side note, you could totally see if you've seen Blade Runner, whether you like it or not. I'm sort of, sort of mixed feelings on Blade Runner 2049. Um, but the aesthetic of, you know, the desert um, and the audio and music, as well as the visuals, he really uh, got set up in Blade Runner and followed to here. But nothing I've seen. I mean, I'm watching on my MacBook in my room <laughs> um, and there's even some light coming in, uh, causing some reflections. But none of this looks too dark for me. I, I think it's just, you know, Macs have super high def screens and you can have them super bright. Um, so you're watching on your home system. You have to do whatever you can with the settings to turn up the brightness um, as well as the contrast. Because um, it's not supposed to be, uh, even when it's at night, you know, during the invasion and so forth. Um, oh, here's Dr. Yue doing his uh, chi yoga acupuncture stuff. He's still really trying to help Paul. He loves Paul. He loves the Atreides, which is why, even though he really stupidly betrays the Duke, thinking that there's any way the Baron uh, would help him, uh, w w which is really how it's told in the original story, too, where you know UA is going to be the betrayer even earlier than here, uh, but you're thinking to yourself, once you meet the Baron, there's no way the Baron's going to come through with it. This guy's just totally, um, totally lost. Um, but he does sort of help save Paul and Jessica, and he does give them the stuff to survive in the desert and gets them the ring and so forth. Wasn't allergic reaction. Oh, right. Here's what we learned. Jessica's pregnant and that he knows it, even though she's just barely pregnant. And his younger sister, who will be born uh, in part two of this film, uh, it will be young. And then there's a time jump before Dune Messiah, uh, which will be the third film, where she grows up to like teenager, um, is incredibly powerful because she's born with the spice in her body. Jessica has too much spice, basically, at one point, as we'll see, see in, in part two of this, and it seeps into the, the fetus. And so Alia, as her name is, another Hebrew name, um, uh, is an extremely interesting character as Paul's younger sister. And there's Andaya. And again, her looking over the left shoulder with the smile and becoming increasingly clear is, is critical because... You know, you want that as the last shot of the film when she says, you know, the, the famous, now famous line, this is just the beginning. And it gives you chills, even if you know it's coming. Chadarak, you can see. So now he's telling his mom that he's having waking dreams and he's seeing way, uh, waking visions and he's seeing way further. Okay, so there's two hints towards the future uh, in terms of part two that they get into the part one, even though they weren't sure they were going to get the green light for part two. One is the romance with Chani. And so I'm glad they do a partial kiss, but then there's a kiss right from the other angle. She's dressed differently, and then they hug. It's important that sometimes she's in her Fremen gear, and sometimes she's in the robe, but there's blood. It's hinting things about them, but also about the bigger future. Uh, and then the big one, of course, comes later when he has the vision of, you know, we see Paul with the blue eyes and the fighting suits of the Fremen that they develop in the big war. And he's talking about, you know, the holy war that will be fought in his name. Uh, you know, the unforeseen consequences of the Messiah. Uh, this, I'm not totally sure. His mother in Fremen gear uh, with, the with the tattoos 
Um, I mean, I know what this is signaling. Uh, the exact symbolism of the writing on her face and the look on her face uh, is a little mysterious to me, but I'm glad I don't completely get everything. Up oh, there's Alia. There's his sister, who's awesome, by the way. Even as like an eight-year-old, because she has the mind of an old woman, because uh, of the spice which she's born, which ultimately drives her crazy. Um, that's all I will say. But at the end of this, she's becomes one of their best, you know, kind of fighters, even as an eight-year-old, um, and, and is quite uh, f funny uh, in a way. Um, that I don't want to spoil. All right, so Seleucus Secundus. Um, so, you know, it's important that the emperor isn't just a corrupt emperor and, and evil in terms of siding with people like the Harkonnens against people like the Atreides, but that he has an entire planet that everyone knows about called Seleucus Secundus, which is a slave planet, you know, where it's you know, your classic sci-fi thing, I mean, look at all the dead bodies, where you're put through, you know, literally hell and tortured and tormented until you either die, which is the majority of people here in their blood, or uh, or become um, enslaved and totally loyal to the emperor. Um, <laughs> what's great is, as evil as the Harkonnens are, and they are evil, and we've seen it and we'll see more of it, uh, it just in general and on Arrakis and in terms of, uh, of the Duke and the Atreides, <laughs> Uh, they are, are not, they don't have the fighting force to take on the Atreides, who among, you know, all their other great traits have the best fighters in the galaxy. And so they need, uh, in addition to the Emperor helping them set the trap on Arrakis by bringing the, the Atreides there, which they'll be the most vulnerable so they can take them down, they still need three legions, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of the Emperor's soldiers because they can't do it. But what's great is, as we'll see later, is even though the Emperor wants this to happen, um, which is about to happen in like three minutes, uh, after this really sad, great exchange, Rebecca Ferguson just killing it walking down the, the, the hallway, she continues to lose her mind as this goes on, partially because of her house falling apart and Duke, but partially just because she's realizing what, what the consequences of uh, of her son being the messiah and her role in it she puts her calm face on here but the dad knows that there's something going on with her and the dad knows something going on with paul i don't think he ever finds out in the book uh, that she's pregnant with a daughter um which is probably for the best because he thinks they're dead so that would be the death of his wife son and unborn daughter uh, um and this is great they actually showed this in one of the trailer the final trailer um but this is the moment when uh you see that leto is uh, again, maybe a bit wiser, definitely a bit wiser than we might think. Y you know, this classic Hollywood line, will you protect our son with my life? And he immediately says, I'm not asking you as my lover, basically, my wife. I'm asking you as Benny Gesserit with my life. Right, I'm not asking mother, I'm asking Benny Gesserit. He knows the dual loyalties. N yeah. Uh, a minute ago, she was going to start explaining what she thinks is happening to Paul, and he says, I don't want to know. I just know that weird things are happening to him, and weird things are happening around us. And uh, here it comes, where he says, this this fa fatalism, and, you know, almost, you can see the, the, the losing faith and hope in their future right here, even in this, especially in this romantic moment when he says, I thought we'd have more time. As I said earlier, it would have been nice if we had more time on Arrakis with them um, uh, before the betrayal um, in the main action as they go into the desert, but sells it there with that delivery and that exchange. Here comes Yue with the thing that's going to put him to sleep. Um, uh, he knows they're going to get pushed into the desert to be killed there, um, but he really wants to try to help them, assuming that they survive.
and the actor does a great job coming up of telling the Duke right away why and that and why he betrayed him. But, you know, here's how you're going to kill the Baron, nevertheless, and here's how I'm going to help Jessica and, and Paul. Um, uh, I, I keep um, not fully mentioning the, the bullfighting. Uh, you know, we, we learn quite early on that, um, that Paul's grandfather, uh, Leto's father and Paul's grandfather, um, uh, was a great ruler like Leto, but he was very hubristic, um, and would was, did bullfighting as just like a you know form of enjoyment activity, and was ultimately mauled by a bull, which forced uh, Leto to become Duke earlier um, than intended. Um, and uh, they showed the bull constantly throughout. Um, and it's a symbol of hubris. You'd think it's the symbol of Atreides' hubris, but then they show it in contrast to the Harkonnens coming up. Um, and it's really, um, it's really used as a scene of human hubris, and especially of the bad guys. Again, a tiny thing. You only, like up to this point, it's always shown interspersed to scenes where we're seeing the Atreides. And then I think the final time we see it, it's, it's shown in contrast to the Harkonnens. Um, uh, hubristic selves um, because Leto, while he may have inherited some great things from his father um, who was by all accounts a very good leader uh, aside from his penchant for bullfighting uh, which is both inhumane and stupid and also we got him killed um, the son here, Leto, so much more wise um, and luckily so uh, because as screwed up as Paul is getting, as little, as much as he has to distrust his mom because of the Benny Gesserit thing, uh, and his own, uh, you know, lo- feeling that he's losing his mind as, as a potential future messiah, um, you know, <laughs> you know, if his grandfather had been his father, it, he might have not turned out so great and been such a natural um, and good-hearted leader um, as he does get from from Leto. Now, again, if you're only seeing this for the first time and you've never read the books, you're like, okay, this character was introduced once. We saw her briefly with the hunter-seeker uh, attempted uh, um, assassination scene, and now she's you know, dead and tries to warn Leto, but it's too late. <laughs> you know, why did he leave his rooms to come out to the hallway? Uh, not, uh, ill-advised. Um, but you know, this is so Shakespearean. I, I really can't stress enough. You know, if Herbert was alive and I could interview him, one of the questions would be sort of how directly influenced were you by Shakespeare's um, tragedy? Um, you know, the genius with Shakespeare's tragedy is, well, you don't know how it's going to end. <laughs> you know right away, you know, the stories like Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet is going to go really, really bad for the apparent good guys, if there even are good guys, for most of it. Just like in this, if it's your first, first time reading the book, your first time seeing the movie, you can tell, you know, all the way up until the betrayal that there is a betrayal coming and horrible things are going to happen. And as I say, your good guys get kicked in the balls over and over and over again until they finally, you know, come together and beat the bad guys, at least temporarily, like at the end of Rogue One, for example. This is just beautiful. This is great because it's almost a release, you know, because almost from the beginning, we keep hearing how dangerous Dune is going to be. We're an hour 19 in and, uh, you know, to be honest, in the book, the actual uh, destruction of um, Arakeen, uh the capital here, and the, uh, generally and specifically the palace and, you know, all the Atreides stuff, um, but really the whole city, this is awesome, the sort of Battlestar Galactica cannons, um, 
you know, so everything is shielded, but a lot of the shields were put down uh, because of the betrayal of UA. Um, you know, the Emperor's people or the Harkonnen's people are both put the shields down, but some of these um, uh, giant projectiles coming from the bad guy spaceships, look, they hit the, the good guy's stuff and is getting through the shields. Um, now, what we will know for sure, what you will know for sure if you're new to this in the next movie is that all the major houses do in fact have giant nuclear weapons of the kind that are at least as powerful as our, you know, hydrogen, super, super powered, super nuclear weapons in our society, like, you know, planet killers, um, or at least continent killers, uh, uh, but there's, you know, there's the sort of unspoken agreement that the houses uh, cannot use them. Uh, sort of how there's this unspoken agreement between USSR and, and America uh, that while there were threats, you know, and with the Bay of Pigs and at different points, it looked like there was going to be nuclear war. It actually never happened because of mutually assured destruction. So mutually, this was written in the 60s and mutually assured destruction was very much in the air. And that's, you know, it, it's very clear if you know anything about hi history, world history, about mutually assured destruction and you know the logic or illogic of well we have a ton of nukes and you have a ton of nukes uh they do get the emperor ships a little bit um so we won't actually use the nukes because we all have them uh eventually someone does use nukes um and so i was going to say was it so okay so earlier they talk about the reason the capital city one of the only cities here Arakeen, is behind what they call the shield wall which is just a you know a giant sort of um a plateau a round plateau um is it keeps the sandworms out um and so that's why they can have shields inside the city personal shields but they can also shield the their ships and they can shield um their um this is great. This is the actual shield wall. This is the Viking shield wall. Um, they can also shield their ships and shield their people. All right, so here's everyone fighting with the shield. So you either get at this point or you don't. The sort of physics or science uh, of, of the knife fighting in the shield. Who cares? This is great. They sl they're, they're on strings, these guys, but it's, you know, they've got like booster jets on their feet coming down close. And this was to show what we just heard a couple scenes ago, which is the Atreides have the best soldiers in the galaxy. So we need to outnumber them, even with the Emperor's best, like 10 to 1. And that's what's happening here, you know? I mean, they could almost hold off five times as many soldiers. They can't hold off 10 times as many soldiers. Uh, the thing with the tooth, both here and the execution and killing all the people around the Baron and almost the Baron, straight from the book, so I'll leave it. This actor is phenomenal. You feel bad for him. UA is much of a betrayer as he is, and you feel bad for him, even though he's a betrayer and he's stupid. Uh, you feel bad for him in the book, too. The Harkins are just that manipulative. They find the one weak spot, um, and they and they push um, th that pressure point, uh, and this actor does a great, great job. Um, all right. Um, but in, in the fighting scene before, where, where the um, Atreides ships were getting bombed, even with the shields, it, it seemed to imply that those were nukes. Um, I think it was just that they were very, very, very powerful bombs. It's just physics. You know, it's like, yes, you might have a giant ship with a shield, but you put enough explosives, and just the pressure of the explosives will knock them to the ground. And then they'll, you know, I think that's what happened was, it wasn't that they were necessarily getting through the shields, all, all of that ordinance, but enough to knock it to the ground where they would then, you know, explode on impact. Um, but they were also taking down some of the Imperial ships, um, invaders as well, with those Battlestar-esque double cannons, which I love, the flak batteries, or I guess PDCs, <laughs> if you want, point defense cannons, if you're an Expanse fan, science fiction nerd. Um, but anyways, going back to earlier, is it's very, it's, it's not that the attack is unmemorable, but the things that you remember about this extended attack 
a scene where almost everyone's killed and Paul and Jessica go in the desert. Here's the burning of the palms, as I mentioned earlier. Um, easy symbolism, but, but obvious and necessary symbolism. Um, here's Drax just murdering people just to keep talking about it. Um, quick side note, uh, I talked about Irulan, the Emperor's daughter, uh, how she's going to be a major character in part two because uh, it's important that the Emperor's family come into it, but specifically the daughter um, as a potential uh, match for, for Paul in ending all this. Um, uh, and the other one is uh, the, the Baron Harkonnen um, acts as a younger nephew, uh, um, Drax's, uh, Raban's younger brother, um, named Faradin, and uh, he is actually very smart, very capable, sensitive, and is the Baron's true favored. The Baron never, uh, while Raban is, is too, too evil, oh, here you go, almost gets through, and he nails, that's the thing, he gets the dart moved away before it hits him, does Duncan, we get to see Momoa do some great Game of Thrones fighting. It was important. Um, it's important in the book, but even more in the movie. Uh, thinking that everyone is dead, other than Paul and Jessica, that maybe one of their best guys could escape at least temporarily to help them. And they did a great job that with, with Duncan. Plus, we get one of the coolest flying sequences ever. He, he tries to get out of uh, of all of this madness with a single thopter. Here they are in the sh in the ship already. Um, but uh, let me turn the sound down a little bit. If I can right, th this is great. There's there's a deaf guy here because they're afraid of Jessica using the voice, but they have no clue that a boy could use the voice. Even the Reverend Mother was surprised that he used it, so they don't know. He's going to try and use it, and they'll slap him, but they still aren't aware. And, he f and his mom is telling him, don't do it, but of course he's going to try. And then once he gets mom's, uh, 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 you know, once he gets the, 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 um, once he gets the gag off his mom's mouth, it's you know it's it's two of the best voice users in the galaxy working together. They can literally get them to do anything. You know, at that point, the best they could do is is get out at the desert. Oh man, this is great. You know, some missiles, just this giant reverse fireworks show, just blowing up everything. So, anyways, as I was trying to get to, is that, uh, you know, this was the place to add action. Uh, that was just in the imagination. It's nothing that contradicts the books, but this was, you know, all in the, the ima visual uh, imagination of um, of the director. He really got a chance to just do an action scene, and we're going to get to see a lot of this. I won't harp on this till we get, till further on, but <laughs> this is great. These guys are so scared of Duncan already that they just back away and let him steal the thopter. I guess they assume he'll get shot down anyways. Uh, but. Uh, you know, they covered the first two thirds of, of the Dune novel in this first movie, and there's no way the second one will be shorter uh, um, than two hours and fifteen or two two and a half hours. All right, here he goes. This looks awesome. Again, this was really hard to see on my dad's screen, but on my great Mac Retina screen, even though it's small and in the theater looks spectacular. I mean, this just is you know, this is this is kinetic in a way that really Star Wars has not been. Um, like even the Poe and the X-wing stuff never looked this this cool or this like real like feel so dangerous, you know. In the original Star Trek reboot, you get a little bit of this. Oh, that's great, Momoa looking both mad and, uh, you know, desperate and, and depressed. I mean, Momoa can do some great acting, um, uh, when he wants to, and that's why, uh, uh, um. So, anyways, to, just to finish this thought, you know, the actual destruction of um, Arrakis. Isn't there's not that many pages because it's about UA's betrayal. It's about Leto's bet getting betrayed. Uh, it's about this part getting taken to the Harkonnen, uh, biting the tooth to try and assassinate the Baron. It's about this getting brought into the desert and finding their way down. 
and then moving on to the desert stuff, which while they linger a, a really good amount of time and have some of the best scenes between these two as they're in the desert before they find the Fremen, uh, and it's even longer in the book. Um, uh, and, uh, y- you know, the, the, it's more the feeling of how quickly, brutally, and completely the house of Atreides is destroyed. Uh, Frank Herbert did a good job with the knife fighting stuff in the books. But he's not one to love talking about how much um, the details of the fight. I mean, you know, you read some stuff. Like, like okay, if you guys play Dungeons & Dragons, um, most of it, the official stuff takes place in the Forgotten Realms, um, which comes from a, a long series of books by R.A. Salvatore going back to the 80s, um, which you'd think I would be into being a fantasy nerd uh, since I was a kid in the 80s till now. I was more into Dragonlance, which is sort of also part of Dungeons and Dragons, but the main part is uh, Forgotten Realms. And because I've been getting into Dungeons and Dragons the last few years, I've tried to read some of the the Forgotten Realms stuff. I don't think Salvatore's that great of a writer. And he's, he, he spends, and I've heard about this, he spends pages and pages and pages uh, describing these big fights involving weapons and magic. And it's just exhausting. That's just one of those things that will always be cooler. Long fight scenes will always be more interesting in, in their best state on screen, um, whether TV or, or, or theater or both, than they will in books. And, uh, you know, my favorite fantasy writers, including Tolkien, but especially Feist, who I talk about all the time, they have big epic battles and they have duels. They, they don't spend page after page after page. Oh, here's the, the two voices. Just, right, they got to kill the deaf guy. And they, you know, again, they purposefully don't have Paul kill any of these guys, leave it to mom, uh, who's such a fierce fighter. Uh, one of the best scenes toward the, at the very end is when she takes down Stilgar, Javier Bardem, and he's like, easy woman, easy, I didn't know you were a witch, like, god damn, you kicked the shit out of me. Here she goes, he's got a knife, this guy. Yeah. She's one of the best, Bene Gesserit. Another reason the Reverend Mother didn't want to take her out. You know, they wanted to see where this was going to go. They couldn't trust that Paul would do it, could do it by himself, and, and they're right. He couldn't reach his full messianic potential one way or the other without his mom being there. Um, so, anyways, you know, I talk about this in The Witcher season one. You know, the last two episodes of The Witcher, we get the build up and then the huge battle of Sodden, which is lore, which is canon in The Witcher uh, canon, which is uh, Witcher lore, the, the books by Sapkowski. Um, but it's talked about as, as something that has happened, but we don't see. Um, whereas we see it fully from you know beginning to end, the, the, the sorceresses fighting sorceresses and soldiers and so forth in the giant battle of Sodden in episode seven and eight to end season one of The Witcher. That's what you want. It's like you can be as loyal as possible uh, to the book material in terms of plots and characters and so forth. But when you get to the big battles, you really should not resist the urge to, to embellish. Um, here's the city burning. This was so cool to see in the ships in the air and to see it for themselves. And they know they know for some similar and some different reasons that Leto's... Like, when Leto dies, she has a Princess Leia moment of, I can feel it, or whatever. Um, I think Paul just puts it together. But he's, you know, he's also develop, developing the sort of um, uh, radical, empathic powers that his mom has. Yeah, it's, it's not just straight telepathy it, it's, it, or prophecy. It is a sort of f- form of radical extreme um, empathy as well. Um, and so uh, I'm glad they took the time to do that big battle, and it's really the only big one uh, in this movie. Um, and uh, also, Denis knows that, um, as I was saying, you know, they've done two-thirds of the book already, so you're like, okay, if there's only one-third left, 
but they're going to do a two and a half movie for part two. Well, think of it this way, guys. If you think of the original Star Wars trilogy, this movie basically has to encompass A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back with the really dark ending and the, you know, um, uh, uh, and all the drama and the heroes are divided and so forth, but with a little tiny bit of hope, like at the very end of Empire, um, that maybe we can say Han Solo and maybe we can, you know, go back at the Empire. And so part, th- part two of this is really going to be Return of the Jedi, where we do get some amazing character stuff um, on both the small and large level, but it's going to be just a ton of action and adventure, um, which is totally in line with the book. But as a filmmaker, you can make go longer and be cooler um, on screen, you know. And like I said, reading some fantasy writers like Salvatore or Sanderson, you know, I, I get, get bored reading about, you know, sword fighting um, uh, if it's too long. It's the fetishization of, of the fighting. Um, but in something like Daredevil on TV or, you know, Batman, uh, you, you want to see, um, especially the awesome hand-to-hand fighting stuff or Star Wars with the, you know, the spaceships and, and so on. Um, Yep, UA, 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 this is one of the, the, so every Dune chapter starts with a philosophical bit or quote-unquote historical bit from Frank Herbert, you know, all of which are deeper than almost anything you hear. Uh, and one of the main reasons to read the books is just to get the philosophy, even just the epigrams at the beginning of each chapter. And one of them is like a, a, a traditional Fremen chant, which is just UA, 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 a thousand deaths upon UA. Uh, you know, as the traitor. Of course, if he didn't become the betrayer, then Paul wouldn't have gone into the desert when he should and meet Chani and Stilgar. Like, it's all part of the plan, whether it's God's plan or the Bene Gesserit's plan, you know, who knows, or both. Um, and so they had to destroy the House of Atreides and have the Harkonnens and the Emperor and so forth win uh, so that the Atreides could win bigger later in, in Paul's development. Um, but this is how it is in the book. You never think he's going to actually get what he wants with the wife. Uh, and he just must be so far gone mentally t- to think, especially because he, he professes loyalty to the Duke, even while the Duke is being betrayed by him uh, and, you know, tries to help uh, and does ultimately, uh, as Jessica and Paul have gotten away, helps him. And this is exactly what happens in the book and what would happen, you know, t- for him to think that this was going to go any other way. Um, now, I did say that as great as Skarsgård is and looks uh, as the super fat Baron here, uh, and also some people might have not caught on that he's wearing suspensors. He's so fat he can't walk. He needs to fly around on these suspensors, and that's why he survives is that when the poison comes out, everyone dies, and he just floats himself up like a balloon to the ceiling and manages to just get away um, with the tooth. Um, it is also cool though while the Duke did miss so the Duke get, kills a bunch of the advisors he doesn't get the Baron or the nephews uh, but the fact that the Duke gets to die uh, himself as opposed to being killed um, it's <laughs> again Shakespearean and still sad and pathetic and horrible but you know he gets to, he gets to be the one to decide the, the moment of death and the Baron senses something he puts on the shield this is great Um, oh, they keep flipping. This is awesome. You think they're just going to stick on the Leto tooth thing here. Um, right here I remain. But they, they're flipping back and forth with Jessica and Paul because they're both going to f- feel it. And thank God they don't say that I will feel it. Here comes the crazy vocal stuff. Now, there is a lot of throat singing um, in, in this, which is a Mongolian um, Central East Asian thing, the throat singers, the Tuvan throat singers. Um, that Zimmer is using. Um, if, if you're a Bjork fan, 
uh, let's put it this way. If, if you're not into, super into global music like I am, but you listen to people who use global music like Bjork, Bjork uses throw singers on some of her stuff. Um, otherwise, you might not even recognize that it's singing. Um, but some of it is very intentionally sort of West North African or Middle Eastern Muslim uh, or Arabic sounding, I should say. And this is, uh, this is a great scene. There's the ring that we saw, and here comes the freakout, and this is the flip. This is when Jessica finally loses it. Paul has his last moment of, of I mean, you know, acting like a teenager, um, but, you know, you can understand why, how tormented and tortured he is. There's the bull again, right? So this is the last bull shot juxtaposed supposedly to, to the death of Leto, but really to the, the hubris of, of Harkonnens and, and everyone else here. Here's Kynes, and just with her eyes, even with the blue, shows how sad she is and how she's going to say fuck it because she realizes that the emperor, whatever loyalty she had left to the emperor, uh, you know, she can't hold on to anymore. Oh, and here comes Duncan to pick, him, pick her up. Um, and so, you know, in, in, in a sec or two here, we're going to see the, uh, the last big freakout of Paul and then hugging his mother. And from then on, while his mother remains strong and extremely important, to say the least, uh, through this whole saga, Paul has st- said, I'm going to embrace my destiny and I'm just going to, I'm just going to man up basically. And I'm going to have to do things no one has ever been expected to do before, uh, but I'm going to do it. Right. The Lanzarad is the, is the council of all the houses, such as it is. I'm commanded to say nothing, uh, right. To see nothing. And, you know, again, Duncan, um, as well as the audience continues to think that she's talking about the emperor, but she's really talking about, uh, the Fremen. So again, like the betrayal in general and all parts of the betrayal, you know, it's not that big a surprise if you're following the mood and tone uh, and sort of momentum of the film that the Baron would not be killed by that. It was great that he killed the entire entourage, including his mentat, which is a big loss. Uh, the nephew wasn't there. Obviously, Drax, a.k.a. Beast Raban, uh, is on the planet or was on the planet to just <laughs> see the massacres and be part of it. Now we're in the tent, and this is... You know, I mean, this is really like right in the middle of the books, um, of the book, the first novel, and uh, the, t- the the fact that we spent so much time with these two during this part in the novel, and relatively in terms of how long a movie runs be- with these two in the desert, uh, an hour 38 in with a little bit under an hour to go, um, is, uh, isn't is just symbolic, um, but, you know, is the case that it, it is just about these two. Um, for for a long period. Uh, in some ways, it remains about these two. And while, as I've said, Stilgar and Zendaya here as Chani end up becoming co-leads in part two of this and what will be part three from the second book, Do Messiah, um, doesn't have the still suit on or things in her nose. And little things like this are important because he does see here in the still suit uh, the, the framing gear that we see her in quote-unquote real life, waking life. And here is the second tease. I said the first tease for the future movie was that romance, which is going to happen pretty quickly in part two of this. And the second, which starts in part two uh, of the next, uh, w- which is the next Dune film, uh, but continues sort of between uh, book one, uh, the first Dune novel, and the second one, Dune Messiah, is the the jihad. And they only use the word jihad, I think, once in this film. They're going to use it in the future. There's Paul with the blue eyes, looking older, and in the suit, and just murdering, even though he has yet to kill anyone. Um, and he's crying that future. 
um, and, and he blows up here at his mom because she doesn't realize the level of his prescience, but also the level to which he feels it on a deep emotional state. Um, and, you know, what torments Paul throughout his, his, most of his life is his inability to see that while it seems like a totally deterministic universe now that he can see all the paths going forward and the ones that he'll be sort of forced to take by himself and others, um, uh, he's unable to see that that there uh, the the golden path, um, and uh, I don't really want to tease it. Um, but again, his children play a, a part. Um, will play a part in this trilogy, um, and have access to some knowledge that he doesn't yet, or or maybe ever will. Does Paul? Now here they are with the blue eyes, but wearing you know somewhat regal outfits, looking at a burn, because uh, at this point you know he's uh, you know king or emperor, and, and Chinese his his empress or so forth. Um, if you don't see those two getting together, <laughs> I don't feel bad. Um, it's pretty obvious. File, religion, oh, my subtitles are off, shit. Fanatical legions worshipping, the shrine of my father's skull. A war in my name, everyone chatting my name. Yep, we get this full prophecy in the book, and, uh, you know... As I say, Chani is his touchstone. It will become his, his real touchstone, but has been up to this point his touchstone in the prophecy. She's always at the beginning, even though there's different manifestations. Oh, man, he just wrecks her with the voice. And then normal voice. He wrecks her. This is great because she's frightened at this level of, of the voice, but then his real voice, her son yelling about being a freak and so forth. You know, I mean, all of these themes we now see in everything from X-Men uh, to, you know, the... Uh, the Skywalker boys and so forth, but this is this is the first, and uh, for Chalamet to pull this off in a way that seems both new but also be the original and not seem cheesy, it completely nails it. He's crying, his mom's crying, she can't deny anything he's saying. Um, here's the weird healing of of the Baron. Uh, you know, it's like. Uh, Oh, uh, wait. Now I'm confused. No, that's just the still. Sorry, it's just the red light of the tent. So this is actually called a still tent. I don't know if they said that, which is acting like the still suit, uh, which was explained quickly um, uh, but concisely and, and to the point earlier on when we met Kynes, um, which is the still suit keeps all the water in their body, including their their nose breathing and their peeing and so forth. Uh, and the tent does it does a similar thing. So you can take off your still suit in the tent, it's taking all the water, and then you can then pump it back into your still suits. Um, one of the toys that uh, Duncan Idaho, played by Jason Momoa, uh, showed him earlier um, was a, uh, what did he call it, a sand, um, he showed him a compass, which is key, because that's how they find Stilgar's uh, siege and Stilgar's people. Um, and he showed him a sand blaster or whatever it's called, because they're actually well buried under the sand here. So, th so this, the tent is not only keeping in their moisture, but it's keeping out the sand, um, which, you know, because of the high winds and, and the dunes and so forth, uh, and this happens in real life in heavy desert with dunes, you know, the wind moves so much, you can easily get buried before you know it. All right, this is the kangaroo rat. He's seen it once on the film. He sees it a couple times in the desert, the kangaroo mouse, excuse me. Um, and, and here's the one thing I'll say, um, because if, if you've done any research about this after seeing the movie, you know that there's, the, 
one of the names that Paul uh, um, gets is Muad'Dib. Uh, in, f- in fact, that becomes his main name, especially among the Fremen, his followers, and the religious followers, religious fanatics, and everyone in between. Um, and Muad'Dib is actually this little mouse. Uh, and I believe in the book, you know, when he... Um, uh, earns his stripes to become, uh, you know, a, a, a real Fremen as part of the siege. Um, you know, so the last scene of the movie, uh, here's Duncan. Um, a little bit of hope here briefly that one of their good, the good guys, uh, their good, good guys, the best of the good guys are still here, right? You can tell by the flying that it's Duncan. It's awesome. Um, uh, but anyways, they, they say, okay, it's time for you to choose a Fremen name. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it seems like he didn't know that that's the name, but he... He, he loves watching the that little kangaroo mouse because it's like the one animal that seems to find a way to survive in the desert without a still suit. Um, so he's he's sort of part of the desert, but also different and apart, which defines you know Paul as well. And he says, "How about that kangaroo mouse?" And they're like, "Ah, Muadib, that's a great name." Blah blah blah. Uh, you know, when I was living in Africa with traditional families in the village in the wilderness, they gave me a whole bunch of names, uh, which was very nice of them. Uh, some of which were funny, some of which were a little too deep for me to even understand. Um, probably some of which were jokes among them. Uh, I was very close to them. So I can understand where that comes from. But again, everything from now on, it's hard to know if Paul's making the decision sort of prophecy-free without using his prescience, um, despite it or because of it. Um, so just using that as a small example, did he know that by saying it's the kangaroo mouse that the name would be Muad'Dib? We'll see how they play it because they're definitely going to give him that name, Muad'Dib, and, and it's the kangaroo mouse that we've seen and we'll keep seeing that little cute mouse in the desert. Here's Kynes. Um, or did he see in his vision that his name's Muad'Dib and then it comes together? Um, you know, one of the scary parts of prophecy is you know, when you see something coming and then it comes true, it, 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 we see something coming in, in your prophetic dreams and visions and it comes true. That's freaky. But when you see something coming, um, but you don't know how you get from point A to point B to point C, and then all of a sudden you're at point C in a way where you didn't see anything of what was between point A and point C, that's even weirder. So it's like, you know, seeing in your dreams what's going to happen in the next seven days and then it happening that way over the course of seven days is fucking freaky. Uh, but it, it not happening that way the next seven days, kind of forgetting about it. But on the seventh day, the result of all that, the biggest thing uh, happening in a way you didn't see coming um, and when you weren't ready for it, that's even way <laughs> freakier. Um, and, you know, most minds could not handle it. And part of Paul's journey uh, in these uh, first few books and first few movies is holding off insanity. And that was his freak out in the tent. Um, and that's why he needs Chani. Um, and just to tease the next movie, where I talk about how Paul and his mom um, uh, and Jessica and Chani uh, and Stilgar, played by Javier Bardem, are sort of the lead four, even though the, the latter two don't have a ton in this film. That's what they had to do it. Um, uh, nevertheless, he, you know, what's great is even though he's these visions of the woman he's going to fall in love with, and it's, you know, when he first meets uh, Chani at the end, and I'll point this out, Zendaya plays it great in exactly how it feels from the book, which is she acts like she's never seen him before, but she's immediately kind to him, gives him her, you know, sacred knife to fight with, says, oh, you're going to die, die honorably, but it, you can tell in her face that she's not sure, and then she's not even surprised when he wins, 
and then very quickly sort of opens up to him and smiles at the end in the way that he's been dreaming the whole time. But what's great is this isn't like, oh, they were destined to be together, like Disney stuff, and so they're going to fall in love because of destiny. Um, but they actually do, like, fall in love, like real, you know, <laughs> kids or young adults do. Like, they actually put in the time uh, to see if the prophecy is is correct on this one thing because that's so important. It's, like, as important as the fate of the galaxy, right, especially if you're Paul Atreides, is that your love for this woman is real. And not only do they fall deeply, deeply in love in the real world, and he doesn't have to have those visions of her anymore, at least, because it's right there, but they become each other's best friends. And he quickly starts to trust Stilgar, yes, but especially Chani, um, far more than he's trusted his mother. And he's right to do so for reasons we've already seen with the split loyalties of the Bene Gesserit. Um, oh, here's the reveal of, of Greening, um, uh, that, uh, that Kynes is actually hiding stuff for the Fremen and not the Emperor, that she considers herself Fremen, that she's working on behalf of the Fremen and looking to green the planet. And here's his comment, as I mentioned earlier, a couple times about Princess Irulan, not mentioned by name here, but that he'd marry one of the emperor's daughters. He's already looking for a way to make this work that's not, you know, a genocide of Fremen and the complete destruction of House Atreides, which is what she says to him. Uh, and, um, but Chani becomes his best friend. We'll get back to that and his most trusted ally, and his mom gets jealous. Uh, but this was what was important, that you know, even though there's a quote-unquote reveal here uh, that Kynes, who's an off-worlder, actually considers herself Fremen and has been hiding stuff from everyone, including and especially the Emperor, about what's going on on this planet uh, on behalf of the Fremen, this is important for two reasons, one of which is clear here and one of which uh, I don't know which way it's going. The one of which is clear here is... Because she is educated off-planet, she would be the most, quote-unquote, prophecy-proof. It doesn't mean she can't be religious. There are plenty of scientists and really smart people who still believe in God, or at least agnostic, or, or believe in spirits, or so forth. I believe in a higher force. Um, and, you know, with the level of education I've had, how secular and almost atheistic it's been at times, you think that wouldn't happen. Um, so, but what it does do is mean that she would at least be skeptical that this prophecy thing is real, because she knows about the Bene Gesserit. She knows about the Empire. She knows about the secrets behind the secrets and, and all that stuff. Yeah, here comes <laughs> the Emperor's people um, uh, to, to finish it off, even though the Baron was made to promise. So this is the thing, is there's already a fissure between the Baron and the Emperor, uh, even though they, quote-unquote, are plotting together. The Baron promised that he wouldn't kill Jessica and Paul. Now, he says, I'm going to drop them in the desert, and we'll see if they live or not, but Dune is Dune, and so they won't survive, but at least I can you know, if I'm put in front of the truthsayer, which are the, sort of the personal reverend mother of, of the emperor who can force people to tell the truth and, and, and know for sure, whether, you know, it's like an undefeatable lie detector. He could at least say, I, put, I didn't kill them in sort of a general sense. Um, uh, but, uh, but the emperor is going straight after them. He, he wants to kill Kynes, who is a betrayer now, um, and then wants to take out what's left of the Atreides because they're a threat. Uh, something that you actually have to read in sort of the appendix of the books, uh, they briefly use the word cousin um, between the barons, uh, between the Harkonnens, the Atreides, and the emperor, uh, whose house Carino, I should say, the, the house that's currently the emperor and in charge of the empire's house Carino, um, but they are just another house historically. Um, and they actually are all, you know, related, which is a very medieval thing, you know, the Game of Thrones thing. It's a very, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, incest happening and so forth between the highest royalties of the various houses you would expect. Uh, but the reality is the Atreides are only a couple steps removed from the emperor. Um, like, uh, meaning Paul Leto, um, 
uh, Oscar Isaac's character, um, it's important that the death, that this death is particularly memorable and dramatic, both because it's cool, it's his best friend that's still alive, maybe his best friend he's ever had, um, the one he trusts the most, um, but uh, slight tease, Jason Momoa is coming back, uh, not in the next movie, but in Dune Messiah, which would be the third movie. And he's actually the one character that's in all the books, but not necessarily this guy, but Jason Momoa is, okay? That's all I'm going to say. It's my slight tease for coming up in books two and three, which will be films three and four, I suppose. And so they wanted to set him up really hard in this movie because his loyalty to the Atreides, but also his high level of skill, um, but but also trust that he has from both the Duke and Paul uh, are, are key um, to the future manifestations of, of Jason Momoa's. Uh, let me, I'll stop there. He, he'll be back, guys. Jason Momoa will be back. That's the most I can say. Um, but... Uh, but anyways, so Paul is only like a second or third cousin from the Emperor. Uh, so while the Harkonnens and um, Atreides are related sort of distantly, um, not that distantly, but they somewhat distantly, the Atreides are actually fairly close uh, biologically, genetically to the Emperor's house, the Carinos. And so on top of the fact that he's threatened by the Atreides having loyalty, um, uh, or at least attracting uh, the following or potentially following of a lot of other houses, thereby being a sort of political threat. Um, they also have, you know, um, by by medieval uh, European standards, um, uh, you know, a, a genetic claim to the throne uh, as much or more than any other house. There he goes for now, as much or more than any other house in the Imperium. So that is an important fact, too, that you might or might not know. And there you have it. Um, there is also another close family relation between the Harkonnens and uh, the Atreides. It's a big shock, kind of. Uh, and you, if you're very smart and you think a lot about it, um, you, even if you've just seen this movie and you've just seen it once or twice and you haven't read the book, you might be able to figure out what the other um, uh, uh, weird relation, um, genetic relationship might be. Um, but I'm not going to say that here. We'll save that for, for next film. I will say, however, as she nobly helps them in the end, uh, Leith Kynes, um, part of the reason I thought they were t making her into a, a black woman instead of a man, and I've t I didn't get to earlier, guys. I've, I've left a few thoughts hanging. I apologize as we go through the final act of the film here, is in the book, it turns out that Leith Kynes is Chinese father. So she's half off-worlder by blood. And even though Leith Kynes in the books, like this Leith Kynes, you know, has gone native um, and considers himself Fremen, genetically speaking, they're off-worlders who have mated with Fremen. Um, it doesn't end up being that important, actually, that Chinese uh, Kynes' daughter, other than Chani might be able to relate to Paul being an off-worlder a little bit more. Um, but that could easily be chalked up to her just being in love, but also smart as hell um, and, and empathic as hell and so forth. Uh, it's just an interesting th uh, thing that's that's revealed later on. Uh, now, I thought it was because, you know, Zendaya is some sort of uh, nebulous uh, um, ethnicity um, that's, I think, more Latina than black, or maybe mostly Latina, all Latina. I apologize for not knowing off the top of my head. Um, I mean, her parents are mixed white and brown of, of some sort, um, but you could go either way. So I thought part of this was they were trying to keep that continuity, um, and by having uh, black kinds, she could be Zendaya's mom. And I'm like, okay, what light-skinned person, whether they're white or brown, could she have mated with in this new scenario where Chani... 
uh, father, we would know, well, that would be Stilgar. It's, you know, it, in the book, you even think, uh, I think thinking back to the first couple times I read it, you, you almost think each time you read it that they're going to reveal uh, th- that Stilgar is her dad. Um, but that's not indeed the case. I don't think we ever find out who her mom, um, uh, I'm sorry, um, Right. Uh, sorry, let me go back. Stilgar is obviously not her dad in the book because Leah Kynes, the man version, is the dad. Um, but here I could totally see them have revealing, quote unquote, that Javier Bardem at Stilgar is, is her father. Now, she mentions when she gives the knife to Paul, so they tease the riding the worm here. And they show us at the very end the worm surfing, as my dad called it, uh, which it really is. Um, you put the hooks on the worm and it turns away from the sand because it doesn't want to get, oh, boom, got nailed. doesn't want to get sand uh, in its exposed um, side. And so it rolls and it rolls you up to the top as it rolls um, uh, sort of over. Uh, and as long as you keep the hooks in, you can ride it and you can even steer it. And, you know, huge entire uh, Fremen sieges can ride a giant sandworm together. And we'll definitely see that. And that's the final part of Paul's Fremen testing is being able to call and ride a worm. Um, it will probably happen early in the next film. Uh, this gives me chills though, because while Kynes does die in the desert, um, in the books, uh, after the emperor figures out her game, um, his game, um, uh, he's alone. And the, while it's very dramatic, it's him just thinking to himself about dying in the desert and philosophically what he's accomplished and what he hasn't. Um, this is so, so much more effective in a film though, starting to beat the ground like a drum and the percussion calling the worm and yeah, closing her eyes and being sort of ecstatically happy that it was not these <laughs> barbaric assholes, um, but Shai Hulud, her master, the God, the old man of the desert, um, who did it, um, uh, and she doesn't care that she killed those guys, you know. She's just, like, all Fremen who see their time coming, um, that's how they want to go. They wanted to go in the desert with, uh, with the worm. Uh, so this is a 5,000-meter-high sandstorm. I don't know if they go that high in real life. That's three miles. Uh, but it's cool because they should be dead. There's now evidence clear evidence from the emperor that they're alive. And so they had to create a scenario where they would then be thought for sure now to be dead. And a 5,000 meter uh, sandstorm while, you know, half broken down Millennium Falcon level, uh, barely running uh, ornithopter that they've got here going over that storm and surviving, you know, it seems impossible. Uh, that they would live, but just like when they didn't realize that Paul had the voice in the kidnapping and had only gagged his mom, they don't realize that, you know, Paul's uh, superpowers allow him to be good at everything, including flying a thopter, because again, his, it's not just his physical senses, but his prophetic senses that can tell him what's going on around him. You know, I, I, I mean, to, uh, can he focus it like a laser? Like, can he say, okay, 10 minutes from now, what were the possible outcomes? And again, this drives him crazy because he tries to sort of actively access prophecy more and more as things get crazier in the universe. Um, in part two of, of this of film that we're going to see in a couple of years and also the future books. Um, now, here's his mom doing the... the um, uh, the fear mantra again, uh, fear is the mind killer. You know, in the books, Paul does it as well um, as one of the things he's learned from the mom, but it's, it's more effective to have Rebecca be the one to do it because uh, she really is scared on a level that he's he's more angry and confused. Um, uh, he can't afford to be scared. Okay, so this is this is great. So all of a sudden, um, a great-looking young uh, black man here um, uh, 
who looks very friendly and very much like a mentor of the desert, who's clearly Fremen, is teaching Paul in his, in his vision about the desert. And he's saying, I'm going to teach you. Okay? And he has a few different visions with this guy. And he does teach himself about the desert. And this is Paul, you know, um, what he just did there, closing his eyes, and he's, you know, flying blind. It's totally um, uh, Luke Skywalker. Uh, here's the, <laughs> the freaky Baron come back to life. That's totally Luke Skywalker putting the targeting computer away. Use the force, Luke. Use the force. This is him using the force here. Uh, Paul, in the previous scene, here's the grossness of the Baron coming back to life. Um, it's not that this stuff is weak. It's greatly shot, but just like Jared Leto, Leto and, and Blade Runner, um, it's just, you know, it's clearly the weakest part are the mustache-twirling villains who could be much more interesting, especially when you have source material like Dune where the Baron Harkonnen isn't just the obvious father, uh, uncle of the psychopath um, but is loud and boisterous and flamboyant and somewhat complicated um, and treacherous on a more interesting and less obvious level. Um, nothing survives a storm, right? They're trying to convince themselves as much as anyone else uh, that the... Uh, that Paul and his mom didn't survive, but they, you know, they thought they were dead the, the first time they were dropped in the desert. So it's done finally. Uh, one must wonder whether the Baron would be a little more suspicious about these uh, supposed results if he weren't, you know, almost dead. Um, but, um, but anyways, uh, you know, so that guy's teaching Paul. Uh, I want to talk about this economics talk here about how expensive that was in a second. Uh, but the point is that guy becomes, uh, I always forget his name, Jameis or, um, or yeah, Jameis, um, who's the guy who meet from Stilgar's tribe who immediately challenges uh, Jessica, actually. Well, Stilgar slash Jessica, um, because Jessica, uh, who bested, um, Jessica bested their leader. And so either their leader and or Jessica has to fight him. And Paul says, no, I'm going to be the champion. And he's never killed anyone before. And Jameis is like, I'm going to skewer you. And Zendaya gives him, uh, Chani gives him the knife and so forth and so on. Um, uh, oh, that's where Chani by the says, uh, Chani says, I got this from my great aunt. Um, and so I wonder if they're already hinting to the fact, let me put it this way, the fact that Chani is Kynes' uh, daughter in the book, like I said, it's not really important in the long run, but it's a really cool connection uh, that she has off-worlder blood um, and some off-worlder knowledge. Um, and so why not make this Kynes uh, her mom, or maybe that's her great aunt, um, you know, some sort of connection there. Um, you know, again, I... I, I doesn't have to be like like uh, like Star Wars, which is obsessed with blood connection and blood family. Ray Skywalker, oh God help us, or Ray Palpatine, I should say, God help us. Um, but it would be it would be cool. This is this is definitely I think a tribute to the end of the Matrix Revolutions, which only has like three or four cool parts, but they are super cool. And one of them is when they're flying to the Machine City. Uh, Neo, you know, is stopping all the bombs uh, they're shooting at him in Trinity uh, eventually becomes too much and he just says, you know, keep pulling up, pull up, pull up and she pulls up so far that she gets over the blackness of the sky and for two seconds, Neo is blind but Trinity sees the sun, the real sun, the only living human to see it and in the last two seconds and she just goes beautiful and then they crash back into the horrifying blackness, lightning and death and destruction of the robot world and she dies shortly thereafter. And the way that was shot, going above the storm sort of slowing down it looked a little bit like the. I guess there's a couple shots in the various Star Trek reboots with the Enterprise coming out of clouds in the water. It looked like that as well. Um, but I immediately thought of the Matrix Revolutions. Um, and something I wanted to add um, is, uh, you know, Denis somewhat ill-advisedly, uh, you know, 
when they thought it was going to be released last year and they did their first round of interviews was like, I love Dune because Star Wars is cool, but you know, it's for kids and this is Star Wars for adults. And while he is right about that, um, and Lucas is the first one to say, I make Star Wars for kids. And you know, that's part of the reason adults love Star Wars is it brings out the kid in them, but kids get Star Wars on a level that adults don't necessarily do unless they grew up with it. Um, but I was reading Dune at such a young age but it was not uninfluenced by Star Wars, which, again, until you read the Dune books and you go back to Star Wars, you're like, oh, my God, Lucas took so much from it. Um, but what I love is, uh, first of all, that Denise stopped saying that, uh, let people judge. And it was a good move because tons of Star Wars fans who have never engaged with the Dune property have now uh, done so. Um, and uh, the last thing we need is the great director, who's actually a very sweet and humble guy, very sweet and humble guy, is Denis Villeneuve. Uh, not at all pretentious French dick. Um, he's actually much more down to earth and sweet and humble than most director, American directors are. Um, and uh, uh, they, they don't need him dissing Star Wars. And um, But what I love is he doesn't accentuate too much the things... Um, like, he doesn't go out of his way, at least in this first one, to, to, to show the watcher, like, hey, you've seen Star Wars. Here's the original, and here's what it looks like in the original Star Wars fan. So everything you've seen is just stolen from this. Well, that might be true, but he, he goes out of the way to focus on things that are, are uniquely Dune, um, even if there are some relations. But he even does some nods uh, to Star Wars, small ones, like the, you know, the giant um, binocular thingies, you know, searching in the distance. Uh, some of the gear... Um, you know, again, this has a technological scenario that's not different, so different from Star Wars in that you have spaceships and hyperspeed, but you also, those spaceships aren't working great and you have to use spare parts and like real physical tools and stuff. It lends a physicality to this far future bizarre scientific environment. Like, yes, we've got knives, but we've also got shields and, and advanced nuclear weapons and giant spaceships flown by people that are, you know... <laughs> living in spice bubbles and, and predicting futures of where we're jumping and blah, blah, blah. So there are some nice little nods to, uh, to Star Wars visually um, in a way that doesn't seem like stealing. Um, but, you know, what is stealing, right? All art ultimately uh, is derivative. And so better to just acknowledge influences um, and have conversations going in both ways. Here's where Paul's, um, he studied very hard, but he also has an instinct of the desert, as I mentioned earlier. Um, one of the very cool parts um, that we'll get more of uh, in the second part to this and in Dune Messiah is, um, <laughs> you know, it starts feeling like he was just born on the wrong planet and that this is his natural home. He doesn't just adapt to D Dune. It, it, you know, he, he quote-unquote realizes that this is, you know, this is his actual home. It helps that Stilgar sort of adopts him as a father figure um, and Chani... Um, Nope, there he sees Duncan, still alive with the Fremen, not a coincidence, sorry guys, Jason Momoa's coming back. I mean, you had to think there was at least a chance that Momoa and uh, Brolin as Gurney would come back, given, uh, you know, how importantly they're set up in this film and just their level of, of actor fame. Um, uh, but uh, just like earlier on, when Paul puts on the still suit, she's touching her belly, I, I think for the baby. Um, uh um, he has an instinct for all this. So he's putting together his, you know, his physical intellectual knowledge. And here's Chani in the suit with the heavy mask. Um, but anyway, sorry, earlier, the, the, the young black guy. So that ends up being Jameis, who's the guy that he has to fight and the first guy he ever kills. Um, and while the movie sort of ends with that, uh, for the most part, oh, here's the kangaroo mouse, the Muad'Dib, that will become his name. He's seeing it with her. 
He's looking at her. She's going to look at him. Um, you know, it's important that everything in his life goes through her because she's the only thing that's quote-unquote real. Um, and that's one of the many things that gets lost in the Matrix. Um, and to go back to the Star Wars thing, oh, here's Jameis again, right? You think he's the friendly guy, and this is, makes it even harder for him to kill Jameis because he's, the, he's this guy who's now alive in his mind with the waking prophecy who's teaching him about the desert, come with me, and then he turns out to be a kind of dumb, uh, overly aggressive, uh, you know, a chest pounder who Paul has to kill because of Amtal, you know, stupid old uh, tribal shit, has to kill him. And the first person he ever kills, he doesn't want to. Makes it harder because he's been serving as sort of his mentor in his head, which is fucked up, but also really cool. Um, and this is what I've been saying is, is that's an example of, you know, in the end, he does meet that guy. Um, in the end, that guy does is his teacher in real life. Of course, the way he teaches him in real life is teaching him to kill, uh, which is a much harsher lesson uh, than just surviving in the desert uh, in a lot of ways, obviously. Um, uh, and But contrasted to, to Chani, even though we see Chani in different states wearing different stuff at sort of different ages and different points in their life, their love is totally real. And, and the connection with Matrix is, you know, that's part of Neo's connection to Trinity is... Even when Neo leaves the Matrix, neither Neo nor we in the first movie and then the sequels, there's no proof that they're completely out of the Matrix. In fact, there's increasing proof, and many of us thought that they were in another level of the Matrix after the first movie. And that's how the machines were controlling things and how Neo could even control, uh, you know, uh, or shut down machines with quote-unquote magic or whatever, or Wi-Fi, however you want to see it in the sequels. Um, one of the many things people hated. Um, uh, but again, if that's just another level of the Matrix, then that's just Neo being a superhero in another level of the Matrix. Uh, but the bottom line is people miss the bigger message of the Matrix. Which is we are living in a Matrix in real life. And it's not a bunch of robots that have us in machines um, turning babies into juice um, or, or feeding babies with the juice of the dead and using us as batteries. Uh, but in the sense of what Descartes talked about, um, which is, you know, I think, therefore I am, and that's all I know. I can't know anything outside my head, including my own body, but certainly other people. Um, but love seems to transcend that. And so for Neo, the one thing that proves to him that his reality is actually foundational reality, you know, bedrock reality or whatever outside the Matrix is his love for Trinity. That's just too real. And even if they are in another Matrix, who cares? Because the love is just as real that way. In comes the worm. Um, and... Uh, that's the case with Shani here is, you know, as crazy as Paul starts to feel at times, she always grounds him because the one thing that he never needs to question is his love for her and vice versa and his loyalty to her and vice versa. I mean, she becomes, you guys will see in the next film, Zendaya is trying to become psychotically defensive of Paul. She doesn't even want Paul fighting. It's not that he's a bad fighter. He's just too important and got too much to do. Um, but, but again, just like Stilgar, as we'll see, uh, uh, in the next film, uh, played by Bardem, knows at some level, you know, that this religious religion thing is a bunch of hocus pocus, um, even while following uh, Paul uh, Muad'Dib and wanting to follow Muad'Dib. But him and Chani are, are smart enough and aware enough, as well as being close enough, that you know they know Paul's still just a human, um, and he is the right leader at the right place at the right time. But Chani, especially because they become soulmates, is the one who grounds him. You know, she's the one that can still kind of make fun of him, like, uh, you know, and, and, their, and their pillow talk together and so forth. Um, 
which I hope we get some of them, just the two of them. I mean, you know, one of the haunting lines in the book when they're first getting to really know each other uh, and fall in love, in which the, um, I have to say, well, the young actor who plays Paul uh, in the miniseries isn't the greatest, hasn't done a ton since, and is a little too old looking for the role. He looks like a, looks like Leah Dama a little bit. Um, uh, the woman who plays Chani, who's actually Czech, but she has a very, um, this is awesome. What can you say? The worm stops at them. The worm's coming straight for them, leaves the sand, comes out, and just basically smells Paul. And to be honest with you, this exact scene, I have to go back to the book. I'm a thousand, even if this is a slight variation, I'm a thousand percent on board with this because this is the true, humans are so fallible. But these sandworms are like dragon. They seem like big, dumb, you know, you know, powerful beings that are, you know, who they are just because they're big and huge and, and physically powerful. But like dragons, sandworms, you know, are so old and ancient and wise and way more aware um, and conscious of the living cosmos and the world around them than it seems. Paul clearly sees it. The Fremen already know this fact through their entire lives, but Paul actually experiences it here in a way that most Fremen don't have the choice to. Now, the worm gets called away by a thumper um, so that the Fremen can at least, you know, get them to the rocks, and we have this final great scene here. Um, but, uh, but anyways, uh, the woman who plays Chani, um, they call her Chani for some reason, uh, in the Dune miniseries is so excellent and has such a beautiful exotic look. And in their first sort of bonding session, <laughs> their sort of dyadic encounter, you know, like let's sit the two of us next to a candle and bear our souls to one another. Uh, she says to Paul, uh, this is actually in the visions in the book. Uh, they don't do it here. Uh, and in the real world, she says to Paul in their first big bonding, she says, tell me about the waters of your home world, Muad'Dib. Um, because she knows that she's probably never going to see uh, s- such things. Um, you know, and even something like rain or a creek, any sort of water. Uh, I mean, even tears that Paul sheds, not here for Jameis, who he kills. Up oh, here's Delgar, played by the great Javier Bardem. Uh, up here, he kills when he kills Jameis, there's a short funeral service for him in the book, which I think they'll do in the next movie, where everyone goes around and says, I remember this about Jameis, I remember that about Jameis, and, or what, what did Jameis teach me? Um, and when it comes to Paul, they don't expect him to say anything. He's still kind of traumatized by killing someone. Um, he, he says, uh, he actually starts talking quite at length about Jameis. Um, but the big thing is, he said, you know, Jameis taught me how to kill, I think is the line, what it means to die. But I think he specifically says, Jameis taught me how to kill. And he sheds a, a tear or a few tears. And, and the Fremen are shocked by it, even though he's an off-worlder. But now that he's sort of becoming one of them as a Fremen, and, and they're like, oh, he's shedding tears for the dead. Um, and while we in our society and Paul in his you know previous world, which is somewhat similar to our world culturally, in Caladan where there's plenty of water, you know, crying uh, even for something you don't know well, uh, especially because you killed them, uh, it's been traumatic and he's been in tons of trauma leading up to it, um, would be a normal act. But that's actually the buy-in for the Fremen. Um, and while uh, winning the fight against the guy, not wanting to kill him and being honorable uh, and killing him only really to save his own life, Jameis sort of forces Paul to kill him. It's described great in the book. When Jameis realizes he's lost, um, he, he throws himself um, uh, completely recklessly at Paul. Um, 
to force Paul to kill him because he, he realizes that, that Paul is worthy of winning the fight um, and, and that he does have to teach the lesson. So this goes back to the vision. Sorry if I'm jumping all over the place. So Jameis in the vision teaching him, says, I'm going to teach you the ways of the Fremen. And he does teach him some stuff within the vision, but the real Jameis teaches him the real thing, which is sometimes you got to kill people you don't want to kill to survive and, and for greater cause. Um, in the book, Paul runs up just like this uh, into the rocks and is apparently hiding. He is uh, found out by, by Chani, as happens here. Um, but his mother, um, before she beats Stilgar, he says to Stil- she says to Stilgar, you know, Paul's trained to go up there, and he's also trained to not come down until I tell him to do so. And then she, you know, flips things, and that's <laughs> what happens here, where she beats Stilgar in like two seconds. And he's like, easy woman. I didn't know you were a weirding woman, right? The weirding ways is what they call the ways of the Bene Gesserit. They know way more about the Bene Gesserit than anyone, including the, especially the Bene Gesserit, thinks. Um, and so the Jameis thing is just a brilliant exa- example um, or an example of the brilliance of Denis, who clearly knows this material as well as the rest of us who are such hardcore Dune um, uh, uh, scholars uh, or fans, um, which is he knows he can't do every vision to the T in this film without it being nine hours long and then another nine hour film uh, because it's, you can't do a 700 page book even in five hours. Here she is killing it in her short time um, as, as real Chani. Um, but the Jameis thing ta- is what I was saying about how you can, uh, you know, the, the two versions of prophecy are, I can see everything that happens this week and I can see how it's all going to result on a big event on Saturday or nothing happens the way I thought it this week. It's similar, but it's not the same. So maybe it's a different future. And then the same thing happens on Saturday as happened in your vision, but not all the steps that happened on the way there and that that's actually freakier and that's actually what prophecy is you can see ends and you can see some of the means but you're not always sure if you're seeing the right means to the ends or the right ends combined with the means um and you know james is sort of the living example so this guy who was so calm and wise and smiley in his vision and now we see him and paul's gonna see it um you know, is now teaching Paul in the visions, and now he's teaching Paul outside the visions. Now, Zanaya plays all of this great. Um, she's a spectacular actress. I don't think it needs to be said. Um, but, uh, you know, the way it is in the book and the way she plays it here is she says, oh, you're going to lose, but, uh, you know, to Jameis, you look like a boy, but you know what? I want you to die honorably. So here, take my like sacred knife uh, so, so that you die, you know, especially honorably as, as a Fremen, at least, you know, briefly. Um, but then as soon as he kills Jameis and, and they look at each other again. And now that's the whole, you know, teen movie thing for two seconds where he's like, Chani? And she's like, what? And he's like, never mind. I won't tell you that I've been dreaming about you for the last three years over and over again and increasingly strongly and sexually. Um, but she actually, even though she claims there's no way he's going to win and that she, you know, um, she tries to play in her face and in her words that he's doomed to lose this. He wins extremely easily in the grand scope. Again, he would win even more easily, more quickly, if he wasn't afraid to kill for his first time. Um, but she doesn't look that surprised um, after it happens, and she opens up that great, great smile to him almost immediately. Now, part of that is they had to end the movie here, and they wanted to tease that his visions weren't just visions, and that, yes, this is a real thing with the romance. Um, 
And so by the end of this film, even though it's only about 10 minutes from now, and thank you for joining me as we go through the final uh, battle, knife battle, which is a great place to end, um, is from now until 10 minutes from now, it becomes increasingly apparent that she has seen something and that, it, you know what, considering she, like all of women have high concentrations of the spice, considering she's one of the smartest of all of them, um, even at such a young age, um, partially because she's under Stilgar, who's the greatest naive, the greatest leader of all the Sieges and all the Fremen, um, but also the intensity of his visions about her, how frequent they are, despite that they were across the galaxy, at least in the time that he's been on Dune, it seems impossible that her touching into the cosmos um, with the heavy spice concentrations that give them small levels of prescience, um, even though they're not messiahs, obviously, um, it, w it would seem, you know, that, that she might feel something. And the way she plays it is great. Um, and uh, it makes it clear. Uh, I mean, look, <laughs> Stilgar specifically looks at him after the meeting uh, with the Duke, which he just wants to leave. And he says, okay, you're honorable. I got bigger things to deal with, Leto, Mr. Atreides. Let me out of here. But he specifically looks at Duke and in their language, which Paul understands, and he seems to understand that Paul understands, uh, he says, I recognize you, and then walks away. So if Stilgar who he hasn't had a vision about that we're aware of, recognizes Paul. It seems impossible that Chani wouldn't recognize him. Um, but you don't want to give it away. I mean, look at the look on her face. This will be a great honor for you to die holding it. The sort of uh, uh, cute fatalism, almost, you know, like, like Zendaya does this thing also as MJ in the Spider-Man movies where she looks both interested and bored at the same time, where she looks both passionate and emotionless or just sort of burnt out at the same time, you know? Like, they try and, like, you know, ruffle up her hair, wear loose, baggy clothes, and, you know, make her look like a mess in the Spider-Man movies, but she's clearly wise and uh, uh, passionate underneath. And Chani's, you know, obviously way more complicated and <laughs> and fights a lot more, to say the least. Yeah, there's the Nevermind thing. Um, oh, even that little look there. She's like, you know, I don't even know if she realized she was on camera as she's leading uh, Timothy Chalamet to the, to the fight area here. But, you know, if you just focus on, you know, Stilgar's old man of the desert. He's already says he recognizes Paul. But if you watch um, the slowly changing looks on the face of, um, God, Bardem is good. He'd just do anything, look anywhere, say nothing. He just kills it. Uh, if you look on a Chinese face, uh, as this final few scenes go on, uh, it becomes apparently uh, fairly clear, fairly apparent, in my opinion, as is, as is hinted heavily but not directly said in the book, uh, that she's been seeing the visions. And that is mostly confirmed when she says, tell me about the waters of your homeworld, Muad'Dib, which, um, you know, in the book he sees in the vision her saying that, not just her face, but her actually saying, tell me about the waters of your, your homeworld, Muad'Dib. Um, and then he gets the name Muad'Dib, and then they have their, you know, romantic, early ro romantic moments together, and she actually says that to him. Um, and it's important to him that she's not prophecy-proof, uh, or that she is sort of prophecy proof. You know, whatever she's seeing, he's seeing way more, both w about her uh, and about the universe. <laughs> yeah, he, he tries to trick Paul here. It's kind of a low blow. I guess anything goes in, in desert fighting. Um, 
as we saw in Blade Runner, uh, f- one-on-one fighting isn't Denis' like best strong suit, and the fights are mostly cool in this film because of the setting, um, because they're sort of short and brutal, uh, mostly before this with the shields, you know, just look awesome. Um, but it's still nothing that special. Um, but this is a pretty cool fight, um, you know. But like Christopher Nolan with Batman, there never seems to be enough cool Batman fighting in, in the Chris Nolan Batman movies. Uh, they just don't really, they're just focusing on the emotion and the staging and not just of the fight, but of everyone around the fight, which is ultimately more important. Um, but this works on numerous levels because he's seen James in the visions because he's hesitant to kill him. And because he kicks James's ass numerous times before being forced to kill him. As I said, James sort of throws himself on, on, um, on Paul's knife here. And once again, it's left up the reader, left up to the reader, whether he's just like, kill me because I'm, you know, I know I'm going to die and fuck you. Or, you know, he seems to really be egging on Paul and Paul's now seeing death the individual death, climb up, rise. Who's saying this? A reverend mother? And boom, yeah. I mean, he doesn't even really try and hold back. He just runs right at him. And then he's got this look of peace. Um, now, I thought for sure Paul would cry here and they'd say, give water to the dead. It would take two seconds. It's such a cool touch. And they could still get to the end of the movie as they walk into the desert and we get the to be continued. Um, but the fact that Paul is, I mean, let's put it this way. Even if this is the first time you're experiencing this scene, it would seem weird for Paul not to do what he's doing now, which is to be with this man in his moment of death, just like very reminiscent of Chadwick Boseman, uh, rest in peace, um, with Michael B. Jordan. You know, as soon as the Black Panther, um, takes down Killmonger, uh, you know, Michael B. Jordan immediately goes to another place and he realizes how wrong he's been. He just wants to see Wakanda one time before one last time with clear eyes before he dies here. We don't have time or need for dialogue, but it's in Jameis's eyes that, you know, Jameis after being sliced in the few moments before actually dying has a piece in his eyes. That's reminiscent of the performance earlier when he was in the mind of Paul. I'm sorry. We're going all over the place. The prophecy stuff. It really makes a lot more sense if you've read it a ton of times. Um, and it's smartly lack of exposition here. Uh, and so I'm trying to give you a sense of the wider stuff going on, but how they really are playing it on faces. Now, here, here's Chani. Here's the one moment where she's like, maybe I misjudged the situation a little bit. She's very intense and starts walking towards him. But with that deadpan stare, there she is. Here's the recognition. In my opinion, this is where Chani is going. I have actually dreamt about this guy. I was pretending before like I haven't now that, but now he's killed someone in the Fremen way. So he's already taken the first first step to being a Fremen. Stilgar, Jacob says the old hunting language. They all understand. Um, You're one of us now, right? He does going to have to do other tests, a life for a life. Um, But now that he's so quickly become one of them, uh, now they're already framing her next to Paul. Like I said, she becomes psychotically defensive of, of Paul uh, as he becomes increasingly powerful um, as, the, as the books go along. Uh, and, and they're already showing that through body language. Like she's already coming up. It's not just that she wants to like, you know, like bam, chicka, bam, bam already. Uh, but look at her, look, look at her out of focus back there. She looks much more serious and grave. She was trying to joke before, like, oh, you're just a kid. Have fun dying sort of thing. But, you know, maybe it'll be honorable. Uh, you know, she's immediately by his side now. And really from now until the end of these two story, um, I won't say when that is or how it happens. It's a ways from now. Movie and book-wise, they save the body, of course, for water. Um, again, thank you for joining me. I'm going to do a hard out here. Um, 
but I love this movie, and I absolutely love the books. I hope you love the book, movie enough to go read at least the first book. It won't be that much of spoilers. I think you know generally, even if you haven't read the books before, where this is going. Here she comes. She's walking right in front of him. He looks at him. There's the exact look. But like this. First, he looks at the mom. They wait on it. They tease you. She looks back, and you think that's going to be the the real-life realization of the shot he's been having in the dreams. Oh, here's the surfing. Here's the worm surfing, as my dad called it. Oh, it's awesome. I mean, it does look funny surfing on the worm, but this is actually how you imagine it in the book. Here she is. Only beginning. She's been looking at him this whole time. And, right, and here, here's the merging. Here's the convergence. Here's the convergence of the vision and the reality, which is why he'll never question her uh, ever again how real she is and how real her love is for him he has a nice little you know teenage smile her mom obvious his mom obviously knows what's going on she's already known that that's the girl from the dream he hasn't specifically said that to her in the few minutes since they've joined them but it's clear that that's what it is um and while it's very cute uh if they follow the book jessica and chani are not going to be totally in simpatico about what's best for paul going forward he smartly trusts her more than the mom because the mom's loyalty is divided great job everyone denis villeneuve the cast the crew I, I you know i could go on forever amazing movie um and uh i don't know if i'm gonna have ended up putting the intro um at the beginning of this uh it's like a 15 20 minute intro um so uh if it's not i'm gonna put it as a separate file and so i'll save a sort of big picture stuff about this in my life and, and its influence on my life and in the world and so forth uh for that um but uh but yeah her and chani aren't gonna see eye to eye necessarily um about what's best for paul um and he's gonna trust her and uh he's right to do so and they've already sold that that budding the romance is almost less important than a deep friendship bond that they have together i mean the romance is obviously important but the fact that she becomes his best and most trusted friend is uh, really more important um so uh but you know just to say it in case you didn't listen to the intro or i, I put it on a separate file there she is zendaya um uh, this is easily the most important book to me philosophically growing up, even though I didn't realize it in college. I definitely realized it. Uh, and while I've done tons of talking about Star Wars and the Matrix and all sorts of related things having to do with prophecy and co the cosmology and so forth, and the Bizzlecast over the last five, six, seven years, Dune is at the, at the heart of it. It's the best, it's one of the best selling science fiction books of all time. It's one of the most influential books, both uh, uh, from a literary standpoint, from a genre standpoint, but also it, it, it itself is prophetic in ways, um, as Denis Villeneuve, as I pointed out, but it's more, uh, uh, you know, it's great to hear the director and Timothy Chalamet, the lead, talk about how this book is actually becoming more prophetic, um, uh, sort of unfortunately, um, now than it was 50 years ago. It's becoming more relevant and more prescient. And so the fact that it's about prophecy and prescience, but it itself is being so prophetic and so prescient, the whole thing is just weird and awesome and amazing. It's been a huge part of my life. It led me to study philosophy and religion undergrad and in the graduate level. And to, to be honest, it's still my favorite work um, in series and one that I can always go to as a touchstone to move my heart and also move my mind. Thank you so much for joining me. That was a blast. This movie is awesome. I couldn't have asked for more. As you saw, there were very few complaints. There were just a few head scratchers that lasted two seconds. Um, and uh, he's going to be able to really let loose in part two of this. And uh, thank you, world, uh, especially Europeans uh, and Americans, for loving this and being open and passionate about your love, even if this is your first
even if this is your first time experiencing it, because um, we're going to get a lot more, and it just gets cooler, in my opinion, um, not just in part two of this, but in, in the books to come, which hopefully we'll get at least the first three or four books, um, which are all spectacular, cool, interesting, weird, um, and uh, and challenging. And um, yeah, I, I don't know what to say. Um, uh, it's great that people are going to the theaters. Hopefully all you are being safe. Stay healthy. Stay well. i got plenty more Dune coming soon. i got like like podcasts with some buddies and contributors just talking about Dune, uh, the books, and the movies. Um, so thanks again for joining me. I hope uh, you had a much of a blast as I did, or at least partially uh, as much as I did. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I've seen it four or five times now. It still gives me chills and puts a huge, goofy smile on my face. So thanks again. Coming back at you with more soon. But for now, the Bizzlecast is out.